How did I feel when I won $3 million at the, on my last trip, right? And I'm playing a quarter million dollar hands of blackjack in private, private rooms, you know? And at that point, I felt very little. But it, like you win $3 million, it feels good. When I lose $3 million, and even better yet, when I lose 30 million, then that feels amazing, right? That feels amazing. So I think that was the disconnect with trying to talk to people in my tribe who are addicts and people who aren't addicts, right? And it doesn't matter if you're an addict or you're not an addict because everyone knows an addict or at least has one in their family. So that's the thing when people go, I don't, but I don't understand. Why don't you stop drinking? Or why don't you stop? Why don't you stop the behavior? It's like, I want to fucking lose. That's why. Do you get it? Do you understand now? I don't want to win. I'm happier when I'm losing. I want to lose everything. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Good to have you. Good to be alive. Today's conversation, I think it's fair to say, is rather unlike my typical fare. And I think quite beautiful in its honesty, its raw vulnerability, and its colorful excavation into the fascinating soul and chaotic multiverse that is David Cho's brain. I've been fascinated with David for years. I suspect many of you are already well familiar with this human and his art. Perhaps you've seen him on the late Anthony Bourdain show or in the recent documentary Roadrunner about Bourdain's life. He's also appeared on Howard Stern, Joe Rogan, and David Chang's podcast, all worth checking out by the way. But for those unfamiliar, David is an extraordinarily unique and creatively talented street artist. He's a fine artist, he's a performance artist, he's a muralist, unexpectedly one of the highest paid living artists in the world as well as a musician, a journalist, a writer, a producer, a television host, a fellow podcast host, and as well as a highly flawed human, just like the rest of us. He's a self-proclaimed liar, thief, altruistic narcissist, vagabond, and recovering sex and gambling addict. But, and this is the real important part and why I really wanted to meet him. He's also just a refreshingly honest, wildly vulnerable, open, deeply empathetic, sensitive, caring, and thoughtful human trying, again, just like the rest of us, to be just a little bit better today than yesterday. Much more I wanna say before we dive in, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, 
the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Dave Cho. So officially, the spark for reaching out to David now is his latest creation, Cho Show on FX, which is this incredible limited series that I'm obsessed with. You've heard me talk about it a couple times on the podcast. It's a show unlike anything you've previously seen on television, just this explosion of creativity and honesty and vulnerability, 
all wrapped in sort of a talk show format. It really defies description, honestly, as it is truly as unique as the man himself. Unofficially, I guess what I wanna say is that if you know much of anything about this guy, you know that most of the conversations that swirl around David tend to revolve around his wealth. He took stock instead of cash for murals he painted on the walls of Facebook back in the early days that would later enrich him to the tune of $200 million, as well as countless wild stories about his many adventures and escapades and public scandals and the like. But honestly, I'm less interested in all of that. It's all very well documented at this point and much more interested in who Dave is today because it has been such a crazy journey for this guy because exploring how he has grown and matured is I think by far the most interesting aspect of this already very interesting guy and a way for us together to be of maximum service to you and to the person out there who is currently suffering. So again, if you're already familiar with David, you know he is a wildly charismatic and entertaining individual, but I think you might be surprised by today's conversation, which is qualitatively different. In many ways, David, as perhaps you have never before seen him. It's a conversation very focused on things like mental health, childhood trauma, the many perils of addiction, identity, sobriety, creativity, and more broadly, this journey that he's been on towards self-acceptance and self-love. David is one of the few brave souls who can shine a flashlight on the darkest places of his soul. It's a rare authenticity that not only makes my job as a conversationalist easier, but also somehow gives myself and others and all of you the green light to do the same. In other words, David invites and holds space for myself, for you, for all of us to match his authenticity. I adore this conversation. It really is nothing short of magical. And I hope that you find it helpful, especially if you're one of the many who is struggling or suffering right now. Lastly, if this is your first rendezvous with David, this is not one for the kiddos ears. Explicits are definitely dropped and thus you have been forewarned. And I think that's just about all I wanna say about what's to come. So without further ado, please enjoy what I think is a very meaningful and deeply heart-centered conversation with the colorful cultural disruptor himself, the singular David Cho. It's really nice to meet you, man. Nice to meet you too. I've uh, been looking forward to this for a while. And uh, as somebody who's kind of followed your trajectory, your arc for a while, just delighted that you would agree to come here. I have to say, I was really surprised when you DM'd me because I was saying <laughs> stuff about you know the show and, and, and you on the podcast. And when you reached out, I was like thrilled. So um, I'm excited to talk to you. And you know, typically with these things, like I do a ton of research and I come like loaded to bear with all these mm-hmm. questions and in thinking about like how to approach this with you, like I, I, I honestly like, I was like, I can go down some crazy rabbit hole and learn everything I can possibly learn about what you've shared publicly. But, you know, I really just wanna be present with you. Like I wanna do a mm. little bit of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Mm. And I guess I'm really interested in like this growth trajectory that you've been on. Mm. Um, I think it's really fascinating. 
it's impressive. I think there's so much wisdom to be mined that could be helpful to other people because it's been a fucking journey, man, that you've been on. Uh, yeah, well, I guess I should start with um, full disclosure. I don't have social media. So the person who DM'd you mm, was uh, was my <laughs> assistant. Yeah, all right. Um, Fair enough, man. I appreciate the honesty. Well, you know, like I am aware that I have a social media presence, mm. but it's it's not me like that. Yeah, is that, that for self preservation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's the it's it has added. Um, you know, I can't sit here and say it's added nothing to my life because it's I use it as a promotional tool and get get my message out. But negative feedback and especially positive feedback doesn't help me. You know, so I. I have a child um, blocked phone. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have access to those things. So if I wanna write something or reach out to someone, I send it to my assistant and he reaches out. And um, I appreciate, um, you know, in, in my days where I did do podcasts, I would do the same. I would, I would do as much homework and be as prepared as possible. And I just, I, I don't know if you can tell, but like I'm very intimidated to be here because oh, like, you, should, you shouldn't be, <laughs> dude. You shouldn't be. I am, and I'll tell you why. But be- you see, I will say you seem really like chill and grounded, like not I meditated the maniacal, in the IHOP par- yeah, like lot. the maniacal, like high energy, <laughs> like high wire act dude that like we're kind of accustomed to. Um, I meditated in the IHOP parking lot uh, before I came here, and for about thirty minutes, and. You know, when I do these things, I don't do them very often anymore. Yeah. I never know how deep I'm gonna go. So my brain um, marks where all the fast food places are. So I know getting off the freeway, I know I saw the Burger King, the McDonald's, the Jack in the Box, the IHOP. And I go, I don't know what's gonna happen with Rich today, but depending on what happens, uh-huh. my brain has already planned my, how I'm gonna get high at the end of this, which <laughs> is, you know, the fries at, at McDonald's, two tacos from Jack in the Box. And, you know, I'm not an athlete, you know, and as I get older, I try to stay in shape and, you know, doing a very poor job of it. And when I meet someone who's like a marathon runner, and in your case, like, I don't even know what you call the the things you do, like ultra, mega, you know, I don't, I quit. Anytime I have a trainer or, and they push me too hard mm-hmm. and I start to feel the burn or I feel something, I go, I don't feel good right now. Like my body doesn't like this. I feel like I'm gonna puke right now. And then I just stop. So when I find someone or meet someone who's capable of running hundreds and of miles and all these things, there's two things. One side of it's inspirational. Wow, the human body. And then the other side is, Wow, if this guy's capable of this, I mean, he's capable of it. Like, it's he's probably a yeah, psychopath. But so much of that, like, I get uncomfortable hearing that because so much of it is projection, and I get this a lot when I go out in the world. And perhaps you can relate to your version of it, which is, oh, did you just run twenty miles, or you mm-hmm. could have run here from your home? And like, in my mind, mm-hmm. I think if they only knew like the reality of it or how I think of myself, because the truth is, right now. I'm not doing that. Like mm-hmm. I'm doing podcasts and I'm traveling and I'm raising teenagers and I got a lot of obligations and now I got this studio and I have people that work for me. Mm-hmm. So there's this you know, past that I have that's somewhat current of being an athlete and that's true. I don't mm-hmm. dismiss that, I honor that. And I'm, 
I'm, I'm grateful when people recognize that, but at the same time, that's not the reality of how I'm living right now. And so it lands kind of undeserved. And the fact that it would make you uncomfortable is preposterous. And so I would say to you in the same way, like, oh my God, this like, this like incredible artist is coming here and he's like so full of life and creativity and, and, and he's such an incredible storyteller and I'm nervous, like, what am I gonna say to this guy that, you know, like, the, like how am I gonna help make this interesting for other people? So a lot of that is just being human. Mm. And I think it's also, you know, one thing that we share is just a history with addiction. You know, I've been in recovery for a long time and mm. I, I like struggle with just emotional sobriety every single day and like mm. trying to put a lid on my character defects mm. um, and the negative kind of loops that, you know, play out in my head of unworthiness and, and undeservedness and, and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, is maddening. I guess when I hear you say that, my, my version of that would be, I remember, I went to an art school in Oakland. They changed the name, but it used to be called California College of Arts and Crafts. And I was so nervous the first day. And I was like, this is, this is where all the people that can really draw And my, my background was illustration and comics. So, you know, I'd tweak out and just draw and draw. So I'm like, this is, I was known as the kid that can draw in my class. So I'm like, this is where that kid from every school is coming here. So it's the test of the, the best. And I remember, I had this illustration teacher, Vince Perez, and it was the first first day of class and we got our first assignment. So I didn't sleep for that whole week. And, I, and, and when I joined, uh, when, I, when I presented uh, my assignment, two kids, and I remember the names, I won't say it, you know, quit the class. Cause they were like, you know, if there's people doing mm-hmm. stuff like this, um, that I'll never live up to this, you know? And, and they quit and that, that gave me at that time so much joy. I was like, uh, and, and, and then later in life, um, you know, the way all my addictions manifested with the one, the one main addiction where you can hide in plain sight and no one, no one will say anything. In fact, they'll pat you on the back and say, good job is workaholism. Mm-hmm. So about seven years ago when I was, you know, I started to do stand up. I was having art shows, selling paintings for you know millions of dollars, um, professional gambling. I had my own podcast. I started doing the news for Vice, and you know we won an Emmy that year that I joined. Um, you know, uh, I, I was I was sleeping with multiple women in a day. Um, I had the highest score on Angry Birds at the time, uh-huh. so it was just like <laughs> I, I had to. Yeah. And I remember joining my first like self help group thing and you know I'm most of the guys are older than me and they're titans of industry and it was just I walked in with a less than attitude and I, and when I heard like oh I started this company I did this I had to I had to show you like oh you're you're a workaholic let me mm-hmm. let me like I don't sleep mm-hmm. I don't do drugs I don't do this and look at all these things like whatever you did I did a thousand times more so you're less than me I'm more than you and um and 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 today I, I don't, I like that was such a um, reactive way to live life. You know, yeah. it's like you do this, then I do this, and I got it was like a it's like a game. It's like right. a war. It's all it's it's all competition. I mean, I've heard you talk about how you from an early age like approached your art from a competitive place. Like I don't do sports. This is my sport. How mm-hmm. can I outwork everybody and 
And, and you know, behind all of that, of course, is this like compulsion or drive to be seen, to be recognized that derives out of, you know, the, the sense of abandonment from when you were younger and all the kind of like trauma that, that, um, that you experienced. And it is something that society, you know, our society smiles upon. Mm-hmm. And with that, like comes the creation of the ego, right? Which is the right. beast. Right, right. You know, as society's approving of you and you become more and more successful and and your self-will gets attached to that. Like I did this, I'm the one behind this. It becomes like something that becomes really unmanageable. And it's not until it's too late that you even are like in a place where you can reckon with it. Yeah, I, I tell myself all these stories. You know, there's a story like, that I tell myself in my head of like who I am. And then there's stories I tell on podcasts or write in books. And then you know, like, that's a narrative that I've been telling myself for a long time. And is it, is it true? Mm-hmm. Or is that just how, you know, is that my edit? Right, you've told it so many yeah. times and you know, it's gonna get a reaction. Right. And so, your memory is really of the telling of the story and not of what actually happened. And my memory is horrible. <laughs> my my memory is very inaccurate and it's horrible. And I just remember, um, I remember being in so much pain, like it was, it's both, right? I tend to be very binary and life's awesome or life's the worst, but it was both. You know, I remember having a very happy childhood at the same time being in like just a lot of anxiety and pain all the time. And, and um, I, I got tired of people telling me I was such a good artist, you know, like sometime in high school, like when I was 13, 14, 15, around that age, and I was, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles, I was, I was introduced to uh, graffiti, you know, but, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but graffiti has a lot of rules. There's a lot of structure. There's like, there's this neighborhood you can't paint in and these kind of letters and, you know, and I'm like, I didn't, I don't want to be a vandal so I could follow more mm-hmm. rules, you know? Right, yeah, it's ironic. You know the band Soundgarden? Mm-hmm. So in the trifecta of grunge right there, it's usually Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and then right. Soundgarden's third. And so I, I, I used to listen to more, uh, I'd probably say Nirvana, but then there's a song, um, Slaves and Bulldozers, which is like a really long, it's like seven or nine minute song. And it's um, Chris Cornell sings in like every single octave in that song. <laughs> you know, he's like the lowest. Yeah. You, and I would just, I remember being at my house and playing it as loud as possible, I had my headphones and I, I had it on a, I think I had it on cassette or, or CD and I would just listen to it over and over. And I would start um, getting myself hyped up for going out to do graffiti. And I wasn't part of a gang or a crew or anything. It was just me and some spray paint that I stole. And um, I would just listen to that song. And there's a, there's a lyric in the song where he goes, now I know why you've been shaking. And I I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I was 15. I didn't know what, what that meant, but I just, I love that line and I would sing it back with them. And then I would start punching myself in the face, soft at first. And then like, I just, I was so, um, I, I, like I, I said, my background is drawing like, you know, drawings in like in a sketchbook, like, you know, it's like this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, you know, it's very, it's my world. I draw in my sketchbook and then I close it the idea of going outside and painting something big that could be judged that people would see me, it gave me a lot of anxiety. So 
this is the way I would get myself hyped up. And then, and then I would start like, what if, what if another gang sees me, you know, drawing over their stuff or what if the police chase me or what if, you know, like there's all these what ifs. So I mm-hmm. would be, be like, there's nothing you can do to me that I can't do to myself. I'll hurt myself first. I'll get myself, you know, mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd, um, I'd get myself hyped up. I'd, I'd, I'd already like um, get some adrenaline going just from like hitting myself and, and then I would go out and then I'd get out there and I I just, I had no idea on how to paint using a spray can. Like it's one thing to use a brush and a, a pencil. And so I'd get out there and I'd, I'd, I'd freeze. I'd be like, I don't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then I would just, I just started writing my name, David Cho. Like, uh-huh. and it wasn't a tag. It wasn't like my alter ego. And I would just start writing it. And I would, um, I would like right next to it. I'd draw like a cute whale. And it was almost like prompting <laughs> the police, like come, come get me, uh-huh. you know. But I also knew, like on some unconscious level, like a cry for help, even yeah, at exactly. that early age, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that cry just gets louder and louder and louder as your life gets bigger. It got very loud. Yeah, you know, it got very loud, and um, you know, and and I was thinking about that recently with, um, um you know, watching these people. Um, in Afghanistan, like run onto the tarmac and jump mm-hmm. on the on the airplanes while they're taking off and like falling to their death. And one of my character defects I've developed over my entire life is I have to be first in line. You know, I know how to cut, I know how to lie, steal, manipulate. I know I know how to do anything that I need to do so that I don't have to wait in line. Like if we're at Magic Mountain, Disneyland, at the airport. I know what to say, what to, I, I know every trick in the book. And, um, you know, like when I'm with my friends, when I'm with my wife, they say, why you gotta do that, man? Like, what, do you gotta get somewhere? Are you in a hurry? Like, and it's, um, I grew up with the stories of my family um, escaping from Korea, right? Like you're waiting in line to get on the boat mm-hmm. to get away from the Japanese. and. So I wasn't, I wasn't there, <laughs> that never happened to me. That's a story from my grandparents, from my aunts, my uncles telling me these like hor- horrendous stories. And so I grow up uh, with this imagined thing that may or may not happen one day, right? Like it's like one day there's gonna be a tank that turns the corner right. and you better be the first on that boat. And when you get there to that line, you better claw, Kick, scream! You better do anything. That, so, because your life depends on it. It's almost depends. like a, there's an epigenetic thing, like right. that's imprinted on your DNA and it gets passed down. So even though you didn't suffer that trauma, it's like part of who you are. Something gets triggered in you exactly. whenever you're in a line. But I think even on top of that, there's that like varnish or like veneer of 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 the addict and the addict's entitlement. Like, don't you know who I think I am? Like I deserve to be at the front of the line. Is that part of that piece also? I feel so good right now talking to you, like listening to you talk. Cause it's like, um, you know, something you said at the beginning of, like if I'm going on Howard Stern or like, I always feel like I have to over explain stuff or maybe talk over like, you know, like I'm, I'm in the world of recovery, which is not sexy. And I don't, for the most part, like talking about it because I don't ever wanna explain to someone 
what a gambling addict is. Oh, that's a real addiction. Mm -hmm. Like, I, so I um, kind of overcompensate and go into like storytelling or like, um, <clears throat> like a, a per, like a cartoon character projection of what I think yeah. I am to people, and like I feel good right now. Like I'm yeah, like talking to, to you, that. and you're like, well, that's, it's, that's, it's that thing that you learn. Like people that are really funny who are addicts, like learn. It's a, it becomes a defense mechanism or a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. They can hide behind the joke. You know that you're an unbelievable storyteller, so you can always pull out that card mm -hmm. when you need to. And get the approval, or you know, if you're Steve-O, you can do some crazy stunt, you mm -hmm. know, and get the attention that you need. But it's really ultimately a deflection because you're protecting that like inner child that is wounded or afraid of speaking their truth. Yeah, and you know, uh, since you bring up Steve-O, I had dinner with him uh, about two weeks ago, and. You know, he was on my show, right. and I I know him casually. I've mm -hmm. met with him like he's a friend of mine. Oh, okay, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know him too well. So having dinner without a camera on, it was nice to get to know him. And I don't think he would mind me saying this, but even though he's not a dad, he's he's got a lot of dad. He's like a dad, like yeah. very concerned about like climate change and like the stimulus package. And right. he's just like concerned <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sitting there going, oh, like he's making all these good points. And I'm like, wait, what do you care? Like you, you jump in a shark tank, like any yeah. day, like every single stunt you do, you could die. And you're, cared, you're caring about like what the, you know, future of the world, you know? And, and uh, he said, hey, you know, I don't think I was ever um, an adrenaline junkie, you know? I, I just, he's like the way his addictions manifested itself. And and he would tell you this is, is he's an attention whore, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, all of it is so, um, and I go, have you ever, you know, would you ever do a stunt or something and not broadcast it for TV or, you know, like, would you do it just, just for yourself, just mm -hmm. to be like, I would. Um, and I had actually had this conversation with Rain Wilson also. It's like everything, I've ever done that's, you know, performative, it, it is a performance. It's for someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's almost like if it's not filmed, then it's like it never happened. Right. And that's something that I really struggled with because my final art show was in in uh, Beverly Hills on Rodeo in 2009. And um, I was so checked out at that time, you know, and it was, um, my my gallerist um, Steve Lazaridis is you know he was the same same guy that represented Banksy and um, he's just like he's from London he's like where do you want to do your next show Dave and I was like it has to be in L A mm -hmm. it has to be on the most expensive you know the most ex like right in Rodeo Drive and you know lights camera action you know I want every celebrity there and it was just all like I had to show you know, everyone, like I was enough and I was not, not I wasn't even yeah. enough, I was better than you, you know? Yeah. And how'd that I, work out? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just sat there and I, and I, you know, they're, they're telling me how much the, you know, you sold out your show and the whole thing. And, and by that point, um, you know, my name was starting to be in conversations with like Damien Hurst and Murakami and, mm -hmm. you know, all these, and um, and I got to meet some of these people, and I was like, 
that, you know, they're nice guys, whatever. But I'm like, I don't, I don't ever want to be these people. You know, I don't want to like, you know, usually when you get to that stage then you have a factory and then you have other people painting your stuff or, you know, and then you can sell stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. it just, it's just, right. there's, there's never, it's never enough. It's just more and more and more. And, and I sat there and I just kind of said to myself, um, I don't want to sell my art anymore. You know, like I, I don't, and, you know, and, and it goes against everything of how I was raised mm-hmm. and like survival and getting to the front of the line. I just said, it's enough. I've literally made enough money in my life. I can, you know, I don't ever have to work again, which is uh, every time I've said that out loud is such a, it's abstract. It's abstract to say, I'll I'll go one step further. I never have to move again. Mm -hmm. I never have, like, I never have to move again. Like I can hire someone to just push me around. Like the total um, addict side of me that wants to like, have zero responsibilities and accountability. I can literally buy a humongous house and have just someone wheel me around and just all the food and video games and you know all my human desires and needs can just come right to my door and I don't have to do anything again. And if I start thinking about that, it it messes me up because yeah. that's not the life I want. Right. You know. Right. But you had to you had to you know have an experiential adventure with all of that to arrive at that place. <sighs> Like you had to dip your toe into every conceivable uh, indulgence. But that's the thing is, as, as, as a human, as a man, like, you know, I knew I had people in my life that knew better and they were like, they, you know, they told me, they're like, the writing's on the wall. Yeah. Like this doesn't end well for you. And yet I had to be like, but let me see for myself. Mm-hmm. And the ego goes, well, it didn't work out for you. Right. And even though you're smarter, you know, more powerful, more better looking, more everything than me, like that's how it worked out for you. For me, it'll be different. And to have more and more and more people tell me, I still had to see for myself. And I'm not, I'm not that way today. If someone's like, hey, that's not a good idea. I go, okay, yeah. I'm over it. So I, um, I pulled the plug on the, the commerce side of my, my art business. Cause I went back to, um, there's so much there's so much when you tell someone or when I tell myself I want to be an artist, right? It's not like I just sit down and I start painting. It's what is this for? Is this for a gallery? Is this for, you know, a children's storybook? Is this um how much am I going to sell it for? Like, you know, there's so much stuff that comes with it. And when I when I paint with kids, I do a lot of um, murals with like at-risk youth and stuff. There's none of that. Right, as adults, we need a lot of explanation. We need a lot of handholding. We need a lot of um, what? What is this for? And you know, there's so many questions. Mm-hmm. And then, like with kids, when I say I teach them, it's it's I just put the right. I just you put just the give, tools you're out, giving them permission. Yeah, I just put yeah. the tools out, and then they just I don't even just have to, expression in its purest form. So stepping outside of the commerce piece, yeah. Uh, you know, provides that opportunity for you to reframe your relationship with your art, where it can be just about pure creative expression and you being motivated only by this sense of having something you want to say and saying it for no other reason. Right, which is it's which hard. Which is the best. That's that's if you remove all those other motivations, right. isn't that going to produce the best art anyway, or the purest art? But you said the word permission, which is. I think it's huge because 
there was an art barn at, at the first um, rehab I ever went to. And for me, they're like, this is your life. So uh-huh. I was actually banned from the art barn. Right. They're like, this is <laughs> this, the only guy who yeah. can't, can't do that. <laughs> they're like, this is your escape. So you're not <laughs> like, you got to uh-huh. go do something else. But I remember peeking my head in there and you know, it was, it was a really expensive rehab. So everyone in there is like a multimillionaire or billionaire. And um, there was a guy in there who's, you know, you could argue is one of the most powerful people on the planet. And he was asking permission if he could use like the glitter, you know, they mm-hmm. were all using normal paint, but then there was like a, a glitter section. And he's like, can I use the glitter? And I was like, <laughs> motherfucker, you can buy this place. You can buy this place. You can build your own. Like, and I go, that guy? had to ask permission. And then I, I just go back, you know, cause for kids, like young kids, they just do, they just do life, mm-hmm. right? They just live life. And I think about how many things in my life, is this okay? Yeah. Is, is, can I, you We're know, like there's so much, oh, I'm sorry. Am I allowed to, you know? And, and, and for me, it's cause, um, you know, I was talking to Paco, the filmmaker uh, who, who did the trail show with me. He, he literally flew in uh, from the Philippines yesterday. He's crashed out at my house right now. And I talked to him at dinner last night about um, uh, pogs. And um, they're those like little cardboard, you know, things that, mm-hmm. that you, you know, I, I, I never played it, but I guess you, you play it and then you win someone else's pogs. So um, his, his father was was a he worked at Pepsi in the Philippines, and he and Paco was playing with Coca Cola pogs, and he was, you know, it was a skill that he had to to win other kids pogs. And at the end of the day, he had a stack, you know, he had a, and he was so proud of this thing that he had done. And his dad comes home and he sees the Coca Cola logo, and he said like like a movie had just started raining in Manila. And it started turning into a typhoon and his dad took all his pogs and he's like, hey, dad, what are you doing? Like, those, those are mine. Yeah. And he threw them into the typhoon. And this is something that happened at his, I don't know how old he was, seven, eight. And so, um, you know, and my version of that is, you know, in Koreatown, my dad's friend, you know, this is in the uh, 80s, early 80s, when it, Koreatown was much smaller. Um, his friend had opened a seafood restaurant and like the way things worked with Korean immigrants is uh, without getting too into it, it's like they would like loan each other money to start businesses. It was like support, mm-hmm. like you right. start your business then we come support you. And and so I remember my dad in the car there going like, let me order. Cause we didn't eat out that often cause we didn't have that much money. And I know he was gonna get like the the friends and family discount, but he was like, let me order because seafood can be expensive, you know? And um, I remember going, you know, going, okay, cool. And we went there and it was, I think it was my first time like at a real restaurant and I must've been six or seven, not like McDonald's or something. And I remember his friend, you know, he was charming and he came with his thing and he's like, and you little man, what do you want? You know? Uh And there was a lobster tank and he's like, the lobster's fresh today. You know, like, and I, I didn't have a, I never had an adult asking me what I want, you know? So I'm like that, I'll have that. And I, I could just feel my dad glaring down at me, you know, just like, and um, so then he took everyone's order. And then as soon as he left, my dad's like, do you know how much a, a fresh lobster costs? You know, and, and then, you know, my brothers jumped in, you know, 
they're like stupid david like you dad said he's gonna order now now we you know so i'm like um you want me to get him like should we change the he's like you know no then we're gonna sound like we're poor and you know so this shame i'm telling you a story about a lobster meal you know so then the lobster comes i can't even enjoy it right does it taste good you know i'm like i I, guys i don't want it now like you guys have been yelling at me he's like no we're gonna sit here till you finish eating that and so i'm like crying eating this lobster tail You know, cut to 20 years later, like I'm gambling millions of dollars in Las Vegas, um, having lobsters sent up to the room. I have prostitutes in the room and I don't even eat the lobsters. You know, I just check into every mm-hmm. penthouse suite in, in Vegas. First thing I do when I, when I check in is two lobsters. And they're like, are you gonna eat it now? Or you wanna, and I go, just send them up to the room. Right. So there's rotting lobsters in every penthouse in Vegas. And I don't even eat it. It's just like a fuck you to my dad, right. you know, like, and I didn't even put that together till I was in therapy. And part of the problem is, what did I just tell you about? Pogs and lobster. And I get into treatment and there's people there that have been, you know, seen their family murdered in front of them. They've, you know, so then I make it a competition. This guy just told me his family was murdered, like in front of him in Cambodia. And now he's here. And I'm going to bring up a story about ordering too much lobster at dinner. So I don't speak up for myself. Mm-hmm. So I suppress it, I push it down. I go, dude, big mm-hmm. deal. I say big deal, but then it manifests in like these, it, it, it comes out sideways in all these strange ways. And we all do have, I, do, do I have permission? That. Yeah. That, that's what it comes down to. Do I have permission to forgive myself? Do I have permission to forgive my dad? Do I have permission to eat lobster now without all this guilt and shame do mm-hmm. I have? And, and um, the answer in most cases of the people that I've been talking to is no. So it comes out in workaholism. It comes out in like basically saying, I am not allowed to ask for permission for what my needs are because I'll be rejected. I'll get yelled at. Mm-hmm. And so it's like living with this ghost of, and you know, if you met my dad today, he's like the sweetest guy. So, you know, in the same way, I go, uh, you know, just, uh, he was an immigrant and he had three kids and he didn't have any money. So I make, I make the excuse for him, you know? Yeah. Instead of just being like. But the trauma is what it is and it doesn't right. matter. The, the, you know, the motivations behind your parents, you know, all our parents on some level were doing the best that they could with the deck that they were dealt. It's right. that. Gabor Mate thing of emotional trauma, childhood trauma, like laying the foundation for these errant behaviors and the addictions that follow. We can always trace it back to something that in most cases, you know, for a lot of people, it's like their parents, I'm sure your dad doesn't even remember that. It's like, it was a meaningless thing in the moment and yet it gets locked in, in your psyche and becomes this, you know, latent like, pernicious seed that, that germinates over time and manifests in all kinds of craziness later on. It's like, and we all have some version of that and that guilt and shame that we feel because our pain isn't as grandiose as somebody else's. Our right. pain is our pain, man. You know, it's like, it's not, there's no measuring stick yeah, the to way, compare that. The way it was explained to me is everyone's pain is maximum to them. So when I'm being shamed for ordering incorrectly, I'm not thinking, oh, there's a kid down the street getting Mm -hmm. beat up by his dad. I'm just thinking in that moment, this is happening to me. 
and it gets locked in forever. Yeah. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson. 
where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm wondering, is, is uh, I don't know too much of your story. Is that, you know, once again, I don't want to, the, the joke with running, anyone who's a runner is like, hey, so what are you running from? Yeah, so it, sure, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's all about your relationship to it. Like in many ways, I can look at my, you know, career as an athlete and, and make a checklist of all the ways in which it's improved my life. Mm-hmm. But I think I would be dishonest if I didn't say that there's some, addictive compulsion that attracted me to pushing myself in that way. It's like Mm -hmm. this place that you can go where you'll be celebrated for going further, longer, harder than anyone else and nobody's gonna bat an eye. So so there there is like a, you know, an addict piece with that, that, you know, I'm sure there's ramifications for, you know, my involvement in that. Overall, I think it was a good thing and I've, I had I put enough work into myself at that point where mm-hmm. I could like keep you know keep it from getting too out of control. But if you go to any ultra marathon, like you know, probably seventy percent of the people there are in recovery and covered mm. with tattoos. It's like it's it just it's like a it's like those little lights that attract the bugs. You know, mm. it's one of those kinds of things. So who was it for you? Was it mostly mom or dad or? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, it was a it was a it was a it was a household of high expectations being mm. set that I could never quite meet. And my relationship with my parents is is good now, like mm-hmm. especially with my dad, we've gone through a lot. So it's not about blaming them or them right. being bad people. Oh but, no, I don't think it's about that. It's just, if I try to have this conversation with my parents, they'll instantly go to that. They'll mm-hmm. be like, oh, like, why are you trying to make me look? And I go, right. it's not about that. Because I love my parents and yeah. I think they're great people, it's just, um, I got really, really defensive when I was in treatment because my dad kicked the shit out of me one time, one time. So in my mind, I deleted that memory. And I said, um, dude, there's people out there that have like the most, my, my dad sings me songs to sleep. He takes me on trip. He's great. And one day he had a bad day. I don't know what happened at work. I don't, but one uh-huh. day he did that. And so the, of course the treatment team focuses on that. I'm like, what's, wh- yeah. Why are you guys trying to turn me against my dad? Like, why are you trying to get me to, bl-? and they're like, well, that did something. That one day did something to you. And it's not about blaming them or it's just addressing it, you know, cause this is this wound that's open. Let's just address it. And then, and then we can move on from it. We mm-hmm. don't have to just sit there and, and blame this thing forever, you know? And um, you said this thing right now, if, if, if you're open to, you know, I heard you describing um, you know, all the sides of uh, the, the emotions that come with ultra marathon running. And it's uh, bringing something up in me when I was doing podcasting. Um, so what part of this podcast is not healthy for your recovery? If- I mean, there's a workaholism piece to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more work as you know, somebody's done it and, yeah. and I think people realize there's a competitive piece to it. Like, you know, I want it, I want it to be as good as it can be. Um, I want these experiences to be as, as helpful to other people as I can possibly craft them. Mm-hmm. And it's that tension between self-will. Like I know if I 
put a lot of in, into it, it can be better. And also what I've learned from recovery, which is I have to allow it what it wants to be. Like I have to surrender to it. And it's actually better the looser that I hold it. Mm. And I'm always waging this war with myself over that. But there's certainly a workaholism piece. Can I do more? Who else can I get? Why is that person getting that person? And why can't I do that? Or why, you know, like I, 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 I buy into a lot of that. Like that's a lot of my character defects and I can hide behind that. And while the podcast is successful, I get applauded for it in the way that, you it's know, a in, of, in a minimal way, mm-hmm. you know, in comparison to kind of like what happened with you and just being celebrated. I mean, I remember when you, <laughs> You know, way back when you were doing that podcast DVD essay, mm-hmm. I mean, it was insane, dude. I was, I, I would tap into it occasionally and just be like, <laughs> this guy's so fucking out of his mind. You know, like I, I just can't, uh-huh. I, I was like, I can't, I'd hear you on Rogan and I would check out the podcast. And I was like, this guy is on a crash course with disaster. I don't know what the timeline is here, but. I remember doing Howard Stern. And then after the interview, him taking me to, off to the side and he's like, you're wild, man. Like this is, this doesn't, you know, like mm-hmm. you, you better tuck it back a little like, and to have my hero Howard Stern say, I'm out of control was like the greatest compliment he could ever gave me. And I remember that time and everything you just said resonated with me. That's why I'm curious is, you know, you could call it my delusion or my aspirations at that time was, I'm gonna be bigger than Howard. I'm gonna be bigger than Joe Rogan. And my workaholism was at its all time high, I was like, mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna trick um, Sasha Baron Cohen out to being my show because he wants to buy an art. You know, like he was looking at paintings. But then I said, go go, go in that door over there, mm-hmm. and like we were recording live, like like I, a reverse I, punk. Yeah, like guests I couldn't get. I would try to use my art. Like every day I was sitting there, and uh, my mistake was, I don't know if it's a mistake. Everything I guess happened the way it needed to. But when I paint, I can do anything I want. It's not literal, right? Like I can paint an abstract painting, a fantasy painting, you know, some sci-fi, anything. It doesn't, you don't have to take it literally. I just paint and I, and I have that freedom as an artist to just paint whatever. And I brought all that energy into uh, my podcast. I was like, I wanna use words like pigments, like paint. I can, you know, I'll tell a story, but I'll exaggerate this part. I'll edit out this part. And this great thing that I heard from this other guest, I'll make it like it was my story. And every day it was, uh, how can I, you know, and a bit of like, just reactive, like, um, you know, Asians are supposed to be like meek and, you know, you know, your podcast should be about math or something, you know, something like that. And so I, I, there was a lot of, I need to show that Asians can also be crazy and not just crazy, but the craziest. Uh And so just um, sitting there and going, how inappropriate can I make this podcast? How insane can I make it? And then the, and, and then, you know, once in a while, you know, teaching some of the, the positive things that I, that I learned in life and getting, you know, hundreds and then, and then at some point, thousands of people saying, I look forward to your podcast. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. you get this, you're inspirational, you did it, you turned your life around, you got all these things and, um, and getting almost like this kind of Messiah guru complex of like, I'm helping people. This mm-hmm. podcast is helping people at the cost of myself, some martyr shit, yeah. but it's okay. I, I can take it. I can I can take this. A lot of people can't take it. I'll hurt myself so that other people can be entertained, so other people can learn from my mistakes, and I'll sacrifice myself at this altar. And in the same way, 
that I walked away from painting, I just said, this isn't, I'm, I'm gonna die doing this. Yeah. Like I'm literally gonna die doing this. So I, I stopped podcasting. And so- It was pretty abrupt too. Like just, you just stopped uploading. Yeah, I was just, I, um, I, I just sat in a room one day and um, the podcasts were so, um, I, I just, I just, you know, the ones that I had played for my friends in the same way, um, like I like it when it hurts, right? Like I, I imagine like um, as someone who's not an ultra marathon runner, when the pain starts, it's like, okay, like something gets now, activated. Now, now, now we're on to now something. We're on. Yeah. Now it's, now mm-hmm. it's on like, you know, um, people were starting to have, um, you know, really threatening hate mail towards me. People were writing articles, people trying to cancel me. And now it was active. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. you thought that was bad. So then I went, and I and I you know I still have um, hundreds, if not thousands, of podcasts. I, I lost track, and I would play them for my closest friends, and they're like, "You can never upload this. Yeah, you literally can never. No one can ever hear this." And I go, "But it's, I'm not doing anything. I'm not. I'm literally talking using words." And they're like, "You're saying stuff that is like so bizarre and so offensive and so," and I go, "But, like." Like, isn't that what art is supposed to, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable and push. And they're like, Dave, we, we fucking love you, man. Like, yeah. don't, don't do that. There's a difference between being a provocateur and performing like a public self-immolation. Like right. it, it was like this on one level, like your whole life becomes a performance art. Like everything right. that you're doing is a form of, of media mm. that is an expression of your interior life, but unmistakable in that was this sense of, of you, I mean, a cry for help is like the wrong term. Like it was more severe than that. Like you were, you know, I wanted to die. Yeah. I wanted to die. It was, it was clear to anybody who had any kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, therapeutic background that mm-hmm. like you were in a lot of pain and, and mm-hmm. you didn't, you didn't, you, you didn't know how to quite express that. And you were very far away from being in a place where you could actually raise your hand and ask for help. And so what you were doing was exploding your life in real time. And I carried all the cliche. This is this is my problem with uh, like, you know, I didn't watch the latest Anthony Bourdain documentary, even mm-hmm. though I know I'm in it because I do wanna celebrate all the positive, wonderful things he did in his life. But I also know in our society, the story, the cliche story is you kill yourself, you're gonna be on murals. Yeah. You're gonna be memorial. You're, you're, you're gonna be worship. You're, you're gonna become a demigod. People are gonna mm-hmm. worship you, and I don't like that. And at that time, I didn't have. You know, I had very close friends that were like, "There's this thing called therapy. There's things called medication. There's there's things you can do. Like you don't have to suffer like this." But my handbook, which I was playing from, was, "You have to be effed up to be an artist. You to the best." For, for legacy, for transcendent. If you wanna be known, you have to be the most messed up. You have to, you can't, nothing, no great art. I mean, maybe great art, but that kind of transcendent art that really touches people for, for generations, you have, to, you have to sell your soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, and, and Pain so- Pain is the vehicle for greatness. And I, and I totally bought in. Yeah. I was like, there's no one I know that's like well-adjusted, that has like a wonderful life, that is doing anything that's like, and that's the, just this. And today I know there is. It's just I didn't. Yeah. I didn't believe it at the time. So I I believe that. And 
anything that would get anything like to go to therapy or to start taking pills or, or, or to start talking about my pain would get in the way of the art. And the art is the most important. And at that time I considered my podcast art, my pain, everything I did, I was like, that's my art mm -hmm. and it needs to be pure and it can't be uh, edited. It can never be edited. If I, if I mess up in a painting, you have to see my mess up. If I say something that, I, that should be edited, like I, I, it's just, it has, everything has to be pure. I have to show you, because uh, everything in the society is lies and manipulation and the best version of things. And I wanna show you the, the, ugly, the ugliness. And, and uh, I, I just, I, I wanted, you know, I, I, I was too cowardly to actually kill myself, but I wanted to get into some kind of situation where, you know, someone would murder me or something would happen where I would die. I had a, I had a uh, angina attack in a casino when I was 35. So I have that heart disease. Um, and, and, and that was the best because when I collapsed, mm -hmm. I felt so much joy. I felt so much joy in the same way in those sound garden days when I was doing graffiti and like, I had nothing. I was just a punk kid writing my name, David Cho on a wall. And all these people were like, dude, you painted in the, that gang territory. They're gonna come after you. The police are calling your house cause you wrote your name. That was the happiest I was. Cause I was right. like, it's gonna end soon. My pain so, is gonna end right, soon. Right, like relief from this self-created prison where self-care is at odds with what you're trying to express, which is greatness through your art, right? It yeah. is an impossibility to be a great artist and to be well, right? And, right. And, and the pain of walking around being like, I'm not entitled to actually take care of myself because that will threaten the very thing that I care about the most. And I think one of the most um, kind of interesting and impressive things about this, this you know, growth trajectory that you've been on is, is this chapter of of that that is perhaps the most courageous? Like, can you be a great artist as a happy, well-adjusted, grateful, grounded human being? Well, is that not like the ultimate challenge for absolutely. an artist who's convinced that that you know the expression is only a function of how much pain you're in? Well, let me ask you this: Have in your adult working life have you ever taken a year off? No. I mean, um, not to get into your finances, have you made enough where you could take a year off? No. Six months? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, so let's, I got a bunch of kids. Let's go with six months. So um, when that was recommended to me, it was the same thing as me asking Steve-O to do a stunt and not film it or Rain mm -hmm. to do a performance and not have anyone see it. It was like, that you're taking away my identity. My identity is work, yeah. everything is for work, for. Approval, relevance. Right. What happens if I stop I, yeah, doing the podcast? I, I, mean a lot I disappear of yeah. and then I don't mean anything yeah, anymore. Exactly. And and who am I actually? And so someone even called me out on the thing you just said. They they were like, you know, for someone who's rebelled against everything their whole life, you're pretty close minded and you're and you're pretty like cowardly about this creating art from a positive place because you have all these examples to support your argument of how it, you know, look at this guy, look at, look at how messed up Picasso is mm -hmm. and look at how, you know, and um, so you have so many examples to support the messed up artist, you know, thing, but why can't you be the first, right? 
If you can't think of any examples of someone who's well-adjusted, mm-hmm. has a loving life and also a, a, an amazing artist, why don't you be the first? Why don't you try it? And isn't that not the most punk rock thing ever? But it doesn't feel like it yeah. because there's so little examples of that. So first thing was you need to take a year off. And, and I was at a place with a lot of people and I was like, how come you're not asking that guy? He's like, cause he's mm-hmm. not rich. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you can, if, if everyone here can afford it, I would tell everyone here to do it. So this guy says, you're so close to death and you may or may not know it, but because you can financially afford it, I'm asking you to take one year off because your brain is on fire. Like you can't sit like, right? It's, oh, TV show, the, the movies work on this and then I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna put this like, and you have so many people calling you like a genius. Oh, this guy did this and he combined this and, and you're, you're getting um, all this uh, praise. You know, people are offering you TV shows and that was the most offensive thing you could say to me is to take a year off. I told the guy, go fuck yourself. You know, and then he started crying, and I hadn't experienced that kind of level of vulnerability before. Like with a man, like I was ready to mix it up. He tells mm-hmm. me this, I go back, and we were going to argue. And I and he goes, "Hey, you know, just from meeting you and how I feel of how you're coming off right now, and because you can financially afford it, I'm going to ask you to take a year off." And I said, "Go fuck yourself." And then he started crying. And I, who is this guy? Therapist. Uh, his name is Patrick Carnes. And he is the known as like the, um, the godfather of sex addiction, you uh-huh. know. And um, you know, uh, just just for my background, I have no chemical addictions in every um, yeah, process. Yeah, so it's so interesting. It's like the inverse of me. Like I'm <laughs> all about substances, and uh, and and that's never been your thing. But what you know, the gambling thing came in a lot earlier in your life than I than I realized. Well. Um, you know, when people say OCD, right? They think the, a lot of hand washing or when I walk, I have to step on a certain, you know, and I was like that as a young child. Like when I walked to school, I had to step on the line of the sidewalk squares. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. st- stand on the square part. And then if I missed one, I had to go back and do it. You know, like I, d- I had that. And then I was like, oh, I haven't had weird hangups like that in years. And my therapist pointed out, you have the most severe case of OCD. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't have, they go. So for me and all the stuff that I've learned is it helps, right? It helps for you to go, I'm an alcoholic, right? But is that, that helps with that because you need to stop that behavior at that moment. But you know, as you know, things, if you don't get to the core and cut it out, then, um, it's whack-a-mole, right? Mm-hmm. It jumps. So then you become a drug addict then you stop that. Then you become a sex and love addict. Then you stop that. Then you become a workaholic. And, and a lot of these things can cross over. And so for me, I was a thief. From the, from the, from the time I can remember, um, my brother sh- sh- uh, showed me how to shoplift when I was uh, six or seven. I remember Star Wars figures were 99 cents at the time. And I remember uh, uh, another instance of how I'm not enough um, our allowance was, uh, you know, 50 cents. So I worked two weeks so I could buy this um, Star Wars figure from the drugstore. And then I go, oh, I, have, I have a dollar, you know? So I put the thing on and the tax comes out 107 or something. And I put the money out and she's like, you don't have enough. I go, that thing's 99 cents. And she's like, there's a thing called tax. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little kid going, wait, so I can't have that? And she's like, no, you can't have it. 
And I'm like, oh shit, I just worked two weeks for that. And they're like, yeah, you, you need like 10 more cents. And I was like, holy shit. And then we walk out of the store and my brother's like, I got it. Mm. And I'm like, well, you, you work, you get 50 cents too. Where did you get the extra 10 cents? He's like, oh, I, I just, I pulled it out of the thing. So I was like, you don't have to pay for things. And he's like, no, you just steal. You just take whatever you want. And I was like, whoa, it's such a, and then of course I grew up in a super religious family where there's these um, sayings framed all over my house, do not steal, you know? And I was like, of course I got to steal now, (laughs) you know? So I stole every single day of my life um, from age eight till I was like, Probably in my early twenties. Every day. Every single day, and 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 sometimes and it was, I didn't need to steal, right? Like some of the stuff. And, oh, so you're a kleptomaniac, and in my mind, I would steal a lot of food and give it to homeless people. I had a. Um, no one wants to think of themselves as a bad guy, right? So I would steal like some art supplies that I mm-hmm. needed, and I'm like, oh, I'm a thief. That's horrible. I don't want to. So I have to correct that. I'm gonna go out and steal from a corporation and give to the poor. Mm-hmm. So I knew where all the homeless people in my neighborhood lived and I would go steal food. And mm-hmm. and um, it took years, like that's, once again, there's a story, I'm a hero. Yeah, I steal from rich people and I give to poor people. I'm, I'm a good guy, you know? And people would be like, you're a thief. You're a thief, you steal, that's not good. And I'd be like. How does that relate to OCD though? Cause I had to steal every day. Oh, I see. The every single day I had to steal. Of it. Like there, and right. then, and that also What was, would happen if you went a day without stealing? This is, so it was a combination of steal and break the law. So my go-to was if I was laying in bed and I was like, you know, it was like anything from like stealing a kid's homework. Mm-hmm. So to copy off of, or like any kind of like deviant behavior. Um, I would, this is crazy. I would have to climb out of my window I had to break out of my own house, hop the fence and go across the street and jaywalk and then go back inside my house mm. just to be like, I broke a yeah. jaywalk. You know, it had to be some kind of thing like that. And then um, uh, I, you know, I got caught a bunch of times. I went to jail a bunch of times. And then I just decided one day, hey, like my mind is so strong. I'm just gonna stop cold turkey. And which I did, I've never stolen again since the day I decided I'm, I'm not gonna steal again but then the gambling went up. Right. And at that time- It's, the, it's squeezing the water balloon. Yeah. And my friend, uh, Joey, who he was the first one of my friends who had um, a driver's permit. He got his driver's permit. He drove to Vegas by himself and he came back and he said, um, you know, there's a place in the desert and they play games of chance. And when you win, they let you keep the money. <laughs> and I was like, let's go, you know? And, How old were you, uh, like 15? I was 15 uh-huh. and we had a fake ID from uh, Alvaro Street in, in downtown. And, you know, so we, you know, we're going to Vegas with like 20 bucks, $15 and like winning 40 bucks or six, and we uh-huh. were hooked. And it wasn't until years later that I realized um, both of my family, both my mom and my dad are gambling addicts. Um, I don't know if my dad's necessarily a gambling addict, but my mom definitely is. My dad, when we were growing up, um, we didn't have a lot of money. So um, he would go to Vegas every weekend and try to win rent money or whatever. And and because I know my dad, he's not like a, he's a very conservative, like chill mm-hmm. guy. He's not the guy Controls, that's like all in. Yeah, like he's, gambler. So I already know that kind of gambling. And then like, you, it's like a, 
you got to kind of be bold to to win a lot right. of money. But you were actually pretty successful. Oh, I was ve- I was very successful. I I'd, I'd, I'd hacked the way to do that, and so um, as a fu to my dad, I had to. You know, I made a lot more money gambling than I did in art in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, because I thought that the gambling stuff happened kind of kicked in after the whole Facebook thing, but it really was before. Oh no, a lot of I it, mean, well, that was to, full force before all of that. Well, to put it in the context, and you know, I know this story's been written about a lot, yeah. but um, yeah, what what are some of the homeless artists gets lucky when he, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just to frame. Uh, that that era, everyone was on MySpace, right? Like everyone was like Facebook was like this. It wasn't a joke, but it was like this niche social media for college students. So, um, and and Sean Parker, With had, the Napster guy, yeah, Sean Parker. Like I I had met him uh, right after the Napster thing when they were trying to get sued for a trillion dollars, mm-hmm. and um, he just was a fan of my art. And at that point, my art was starting, you know, it wasn't selling for, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions, but it was like, I was a painting that had used to sell for 300. I was starting to sell for like two or 3000, you know? Mm -hmm. So my star was starting to rise and um, he wanted to get some artwork, but because he's this kid that was, (laughs) you know, facing like, I don't know who was trying to sue him, like all the record labels, Metallica, whoever, he's like, you know, he, and he's a very confident, determined. He's like, I will get your art someday, Dave Cho. And I was like, cool, come up with some scratch. And, you know, so then he started another company, Plaxo. I don't know how it did. And then finally, when it came to Facebook, he explained this thing to me during the era of MySpace. MySpace and I'm yeah. like, this sounds horrible. The name sounds horrible. The logo's horrible. I'm like, can I redo the logo? Like, he's just like, this thing's going to take over the world. And I'm like, how? How is a college social network, you know? <laughs> and and so I had just gotten out of prison in Japan mm-hmm. and I owed everyone money. And um You like punched a guy at your show or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I punched under you know, that's a whole other story <laughs> I can get into, but <laughs> I had I needed a lot of money fast. And so it was a blessing that he was like, Hey Dave Cho, I told you one day I'm gonna get a paying from you. We got funding from um Peter at PayPal, like and I said, okay. So he's like, so what are you charging now? And I'm like, what do you want me to paint? He's like, I want you to paint a mural on every single floor. And I was like, you know, I had never gotten a, a job like that, but I'm like, okay, if a painting, one painting of mine selling for like five grand now, that's like multiple. So I said 60 grand. Mm-hmm. And, and if he said yes, cause I no, no one had ever paid me 60 grand before, you know, it's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of money now, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay. Like he didn't even, he's like, all right, cool. We can get you that. And I was like, holy shit, I'm gonna be able to pay everyone back. I'm gonna, and because I'm a gambler, he goes, or you could take stock. And that's people like, oh, he's so lucky, but it's cause I was a degenerate. Mm. The appropriate- And at the time, the that, right was, thing that was to, a crazy bet. The right thing to Especially do would have been- Especially when you owed money. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the right thing to do would have been to take the money, pay back my girlfriend at the time, all my friends who paid for my lawyer in Japan, pay all my back rent, like that's the right thing to do. And so they're like, I remember my friends going, Facebook? Like, dude, go back, get your money, you know? Um, But that's because I was a degenerate gambler. I would take my Toys R Us, you know, paycheck and go to Vegas and lose it all. And and, um, I was like, "There's there's gotta be a way to win at this. 
there's gotta be a way because everyone who gambles has the same story. I was winning, right? So there's always that part where they they were winning mm -hmm. and then um, and then I lost it all. And I go, well, how can we change this story where it was like, I was winning, period, you know? And I was like, oh, it's a vice. It's like an addiction. It's like, it's like when I hear an alcoholic say, two beers and I was good. I was the life of the party. I was buzzing. I was having a good time. I said, well, why don't you stop there? Well, cause I'm an addict. And then you have another one then you're wasted. So um, all of these things is just like, how can I win at life? How can I win at life? How can I, how can I feel good through all these things that are supposed to make you feel good and then stop? And I go, oh, I have no self-control. I have no self, I can't stop myself, but someone else can, but that's not realistic. If I was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. is that realistic for me to go to a bar and pay someone to drink with me? And on my third beer, when I, me off. To, to, but like literally like slap the beer out of my hand. Like, is that really gonna happen? And I go, well, just cause it hasn't happened doesn't mean it can't happen. So I, I, I paid my friend, Harry Kim to come with me to Vegas for seven years. And every time I was winning, he would physically take the money, put it in his pocket, go upstairs and lock it up mm -hmm. and made sure I, you know, and I was like, but we were on a winning streak. Like we could win more. And he's like, we're done. And sometimes he would have to physically drag me away from the table and the pit bosses and, and, and all the people that worked at the casino were like, we've never seen anything like this before. We've never seen someone pay someone to stop someone. And I go, well, and you know, and all I yeah, had is that to do, like technically cheating? Do they end up cutting you off? Yeah, they because cut you me have off. A system. They cut me off at two casinos, and then ultimately, when <sighs> my first um, GA meeting, Gamblers Anonymous meeting, I ever went to, um, and I got I got sober from gambling in Hawaii, which I chose Hawaii for my rehab because there's that's the only state in in America that, that where there's no casinos, so there was no GA meetings there. And they said, you, you should go to AA meetings. And I go, well, I'm not an alcoholic. And they go, well, you go to the AA meeting and um, whenever they say a drink or alcohol, just replace it with casino, gambling, you know, but you can't share at those meetings, you know, because you can only share for that yeah. particular thing. And as someone who likes to talk a lot, um, that was really humbling to go to three, 400 plus AA meetings that never share once mm -hmm. and just hear everyone else's story. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone's going, who's that guy? He never <laughs> shares, man, that guy's got some darkness. <laughs> exactly. But the flip side of the, the gambling addict thing is, you know, yeah, you set up this control, but part of the compulsion is that attachment to, um, to also losing like the anticipation. Well, here, you know? here I'll, I'll um, so I've been to every type of 12 step meeting mm -hmm. and ones like, because I'll be in a city where, oh shit, I can't find a gamblers, overeaters yeah. or, or sex and love addict or whatever the addiction, codependence. Yeah. I have- You're I, Helena Bonham Carter and Fight Club or exactly. Ed Norton. Yeah. And they're like, oh, there's only an A meeting or Narcotics Anonymous or Marijuana Anonymous. So I'll, I'll go to that meeting, even though that's not my addiction. And as I listen to thousands of people share their story, I go, oh, it's all gambling. Every addiction is gambling addiction. Every single, when you drink and you get in a car, you're like, I kind of don't care if I make it home mm -hmm. or not. 
right? That's gambling. When you're like having sex and you're like, I'm not gonna wear a condom. And you're like, oh, I might have a kid. I might get AIDS. I might, that's gambling. And, and so to go to my first Gamblers Anonymous meeting after going to 400 AA meetings in Los Angeles, I was, I was shocked because AA meetings and, and drug um, NA meetings are kind of like parties in LA, right? Like it's mm-hmm. very social there. Bright lights, yeah, a lot especially of in LA. 300 people, two, you know, there's celebrities, speaker, you know, it's when you go to a, a sex addicts meeting, a gambler's addicts meeting, uh, you know, the process ones, there's more shame. Yeah. So the it's, lights are it's a little really lower. It's dark. There's a, yeah, it's, it's darker. There's a lot of um, shares that end with suicide attempts, you know. So I went to a GA meeting and we went in a circle and every single share, it was a small meeting, it was like six people. Um, every single person shared about how they try to kill themselves. And I've said this before, it's the reason why they don't have balconies in Vegas, because if they did, yeah. there'd be someone jumping off mm-hmm. every day. One out of four gambling addicts kills themselves. Um, so people go, gambling, I don't understand. It's like, so I'm sitting at the meeting and everyone's like telling how much money they've stolen from their family or lied and manipulated people out of so that they could keep gambling, getting that one lotto scratcher, horse rate, everything, right? And I'm scared to share cause it's going around the circle and it gets to me and I'm like, I just won $3 million at my last, you know? That's so crazy. And I feel exactly the same as you. Mm-hmm. You just said you broke into a car to steal a quarter so you can get the next scratcher. I'm sitting here telling you, I have two rotting vi- uh, lobsters in my, in my hotel room. I'm having sex with all these prostitutes and gambling with millions of dollars, winning, h- handing like hundred dollar bills to everyone I know. And I feel exactly the same as you. So I sat there and I go, how do I feel? How did I feel when I won $3 million at the, on my last trip, right? And I'm playing a quarter million dollar hands of blackjack in private, private rooms, you know? And at that point I felt very little, you know? But it, like you win $3 million, it feels good, but not that good. Cause I, I was already rich. When I lose $3 million and even better yet, when I lose 30 million, then that feels amazing, mm. right? That feels amazing. So I think that was the disconnect with trying to talk to people in my tribe who are addicts and people who aren't addicts, right? And it doesn't matter if you're an addict or you're not an addict because everyone knows an addict or at least has one in their family. So that's the thing when people go, I don't, but I don't understand. Why don't you stop drinking? Or why don't you yeah. stop? Why don't you stop the behavior? It's like, I want to fucking lose. That's why. Mm-hmm. Do you get it? Do you understand now? I don't want to win. I'm happier when I'm losing. I want to lose everything. But that's even harder for somebody to understand because you're not operating on a rational plane. Right. You know, you're trying to, uh, you know, numb the discomfort of your internal pain while also seeking to feel something that will make you feel alive. And if winning's not gonna do it, losing certainly is going to. to have, it doesn't matter what that feeling is, as long as it's a feeling different from however you feel. Right, and so, sorry, I got fired up there for yeah. a second. Go ahead, no. <laughs> um, so that's hard to explain. That's hard to understand. Like, wait, you know, you're trying to wrap your non-addict brain around someone who's doing everything they can to run away from everything, feel numb, feel nothing, feel everything. And so everything was off. 
you know, I did, I did like these expensive brain scans to show that I had like frontal, like, like a kind of um, temporary brain damage from just like complete overstimulation. Like, yeah, your dopamine must've been completely fucked up. And so doctor's orders take a year off and I had to sit in that and it's like, well, um, when was that? This was um, seven years ago. So is this like the, the bottom? I had never hit a bottom, um, which, you know, when I asked you about the podcast and you're like, it's good and, it, and, and there's the, the negative. So one of the things that I've, I'd taught myself into being a successful gambler was, it's the golden rule, get out while you're ahead, mm-hmm. right? It's like, how do you win at life? Get out while, it's like, uh, I look at a guy like Conor McGregor, like just loved and, you know, just dude, if he had just stopped mm-hmm. like three, four fights ago, he would just be a legend forever. And now he's starting to turn into the villain. And I'm like, fuck, if he just got out while he's ahead. And I think of, you know, a, a lot of people like that, but you get addicted to the tension or what, you know, whatever right. the thing is. If you don't, and, and if you don't, you know, die at 27 and right. become that like glorified. Right, and that's what I was playing for. I was trying to die. I was like, once I hit 30, I was like, shit, it was supposed to happen before that. Now I'm 45. So um, the positives, if I'm looking at the bright side of gambling, it had taught me, I had taught myself through discipline and hard work, how to get out while I was ahead. So- um, Which is a very non-addict thing. Oh, right. And and I I was like, man, I've been to jail. multiple times I've lost, um, you know, small fortunes. I've, you know, I had this like, I've always had this like kind of, no matter how much I try to hurt myself, there was, this is what it was. Um, I've always, uh, shit, I might start crying talking about it, but um, I've always my entire life have valued, Um, friends over everything, right? So I've learned a lot now. I have a lot of tools. I've learned a lot of things in recovery, but I've, I have like the same friends that I've met when I was in third grade, you know, since I was eight years old. And I would do anything for my friends. And, and I know that they feel the same. So I knew like girlfriends would come and go. I knew things, but I, I was like, what is the one thing that I must, cause you hear stories, you're like, oh yeah, we used to be friends in college and you know, life happens and then you grow. And I was like, no, like things come and go. The one thing that has to like stay constant in my life is friendship. So I nurtured those things. I nurtured, I made sure no matter what happened in my life, I would take trips, I would call. And, and, and when we say love, we usually tend to refer to romantic relationships. But for me, I was like, love, love is, for me, like man love, me loving another man, telling, you know, calling a guy to tell him how much I love him. And so that, if I didn't have that, I would be dead right now. If I didn't, I can tell you three stories right now where if I didn't have a guy in my life that was like, we're not doing this Mm -hmm. Dave, like I would would be dead right now. So Mm -hmm. that's the one, and even in all the recovery places, people were like, holy fuck, dude, you're getting a letter every day from someone. Mm. Like you have, we have more friends than anyone. And I said, 
that without that, and I know that's not um, in the 12 steps or certain things, but like the most, one of the most important things for, for my life and my recovery is these friendships are invaluable. So, you know. Yeah, um, I think that kept you alive. It's like, have you read uh, Johan Hari's book, Lost Connection? Oh yeah, It's kind of absolutely. all about that, right? So, so while you're while you're out there like freewheeling and 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 getting like crazier than anyone can imagine, you have all these friends who are trying to you right. know get your attention, right. and you know as any good addict will tell you, like you just can't hear it like until mm-hmm. you're ready. So even though you say you didn't have a bottom, you did reach a point where you were receptive to some level of self care or listening Bare, to barely, what your friends were trying to tell you. Barely receptive, yeah. but but enough to save your life, right? I had. You know, my therapist likes to say, "Hope is not a plan," and I have um, people don't t- tend to think of me as a guy who's like very calculated or has plans. But I had planned my bottom. Mm. You know, I knew how much money I had in my bank account. I knew, I knew. You know, my brain, like in the same way I pull off this exit here, my brain instantly knows which fast food places I'm going to eat at after this interview. I, I, I know. So in my mind, whether I wrote it out or not, like it had a plan of like. And then you'll lose this, then you'll go on this bender and then this, and then you may die from this thing. But if you live, then you do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And so in my brain, I always knew that there's treatment centers. I knew that there's hospitals. I knew that there's pills I could take. I knew there's people I could talk to, but it was like, um, not yet, a little bit further to go, mm-hmm. right? And the ultimate bottom, when someone's like, I hit a bottom, there's always a further bottom until it's sure. death, right? Death yeah. is the final bottom. So I was like, I'm, I'm 25% away from the bottom that I would like yeah. clean up my life, you know? And I actually hear this a lot from young, young men. I talk to a lot of young men in their twenties and they're like, man, you've done so much fucked up shit, Dave. Like, I feel like almost like I need to do a little bit more before I get help. And the, and the deceptive side of, of addiction is if you tell someone you have a problem with fentanyl or alcohol, they go, oh, you got a real problem. You better take care mm-hmm. of that. But it's, you know, it's completely acceptable today in our society uh, for a young person to wake up, gamify their love life, right? Swiping uh, and then play video games for multiple hours, uh, masturbate to porn, smoke the most powerful weed. And that's just, you, you, that's not a mm-hmm. problem. That's just life. That's Everyone does way, that. Yeah, that's the way. Life and is. and and if I if if I go to my manager and he opens up my Instagram and he shows me my DMs, it's just I'm lost. I'm lost. Want to kill myself? Give me give me um you know uh you know some some things I can do you know and it's just so I sat there in the same way. I was like, what really is my problem? <laughs> I wish I had a sex addiction. You know. I was I was sleeping with multiple uh, women a day and not enjoying any of it. I was winning millions of dollars a day and not enjoying any of it. Oh, boo-hoo, Dave, mm-hmm. boo-hoo. And I go, but it's a problem for me. It's a problem for me. But if that I becomes come, an impediment to reaching out for help because exactly. it's like, who's gonna, you know, yeah, and acknowledge that's why, that. And right. people always go, well, uh, we don't understand why a guy like Bourdain killed himself. And I yeah. go, that's why. Right. Because everyone's, he's already a God and everyone considers him the most interesting man in the world. Is that guy allowed to come to you and say, yo, I'm like you. Mm-hmm. And I, and 
well, dude, come on, man. You got, you know. Yeah. So that's where I was at. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I, I had, I was hiding in plain sight in all these social acceptable, having too much sex, gambling, and like just, man, you have, you go to, uh, you know, fly to Vegas in a private jet and a Bentley picks you up and, you know, and I, I, I was just, I was dying inside. Mm-hmm. But and you I, did have that group of friends who knew that it was out of control and were trying to help you. So, yeah. you know, had you had raised your hand earlier, that that peer group who, I mean, didn't they intervene on you a bunch of times? I mean, you know, they were trying to there help was you three out. Interventions. They could have caught you a little bit there was sooner. A, there was another intervention in the rehab to stay, to stay <laughs> like I try to get out. How man. many rehabs did you go to? Um, I've been to... Well, I don't know if rehab's the right words. I've been Treatment to centers. I've been to the Meadows. I've mm-hmm. been to Pine Grove, uh, Esalon, Hoffman, mm. PCH. Um, I, I mean, I can't. Yeah, like, some of those are more behavioral. Yeah, yeah, a Hoffman. lot of it's behavioral stuff. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, the last one they physically, you know, and right. and, and that and that kind of. You know, when you pick a sponsor and stuff, you're like, do I want a sponsor uh-huh. who's going to be like nice to me and and be gentle or do I want, to, hey, like drill mm-hmm. sergeant. So I, I, you know, today I need more gentleness, but I was at the time in my life where I wouldn't, because of how I was raised, I will, really wouldn't respond to people unless they were yelling at me or physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I needed at the time. Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, shit, there was, and my, and, and my friend, one of my closest friends, he said to me in the car ride, he said, hey, listen, um, like we can't change you, we can't control you. So if you wanna get out of the car right now, go ahead. Um, but you're not an idiot, you know how the story ends. You've, you've seen enough, you've watched enough movies, you know enough people, like you will die, you will go to jail again. You, like these things will happen. So the only thing you got a question is, do you wanna do it now? Or do you wanna wait till you hit mm-hmm. your bottom? And I was like, I kinda wanna wait till I hit that bottom. And um in that moment of sobriety and clarity, I was like, I'll get the help now. And then I went to the, my first place and I met people who it, it was like, it was just like shocking, you know, just people, you know, as, as an addict, these are, these are those things like when you're growing up and, and you're innocent and you're a kid. And when I, when I look at children and they're just, they're just pure, and you tell yourself, you know, whether you just start casually drinking or casually looking at porn or casually smoking marijuana, you go, well, I'll never, hmm. I'll never suck a dick for crack on Skid Row. Yeah, it's never, it's not the plan for anybody. But then it happens. So I think of how many things in my life I said, I'll never do that. And yet here I am doing mm-hmm. these things. And then um, the addict craves novelty, right? So you play the thing out until it, you don't feel anymore. And then you're like, what's behind door number two? And door, you know, and then the final door is death. Yeah. So um, I got to meet the people who took it to the furthest. And I was like, holy shit, I'm so glad I pulled the parachute when I did, you know? And, um, and, and, and today, I mean, you know, I have a lot of, sh- I am a sponsor to a lot of people in different programs and I have a lot of shame um, that I've never gotten anyone past step two in mm-hmm. 12 steps because, uh, you know, I take people through the way my sponsor took me through. And one of the things is 
I've yet to meet um, someone with the iron will, a, a well-disciplined brain who can resist the temptations of a cell phone, right? Because what is a cell phone? It is a drug dealer, strip club, casino. Like I could tell you a million stories of how I used to get high off those things and what I had to do to get porn when I was 15, what I had to do to get to a casino. Now it's just this. right? So I'm not gonna be able to resist that. So what's the first thing anyone says when they say, um, we, we need to take your phone away or we need to block your phone so that you have a child safe phone. Oh, I need it for work, right? Oh, oh, it's for work, okay, right? Then it's okay. And they go, well, can you have someone else do the work stuff for you? Oh, no, 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 I gotta do it myself. So un- until I was ready to fully surrender, which took years, um, and now, and now it's, I'm so liberated, right? You would think, mm. oh, why do you need to restrict me? And oh, like the news and shit, like you, you, you gotta be informed. I was like, I know what's going on. Enough people have phones, they tell yeah. me what's going on. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you literally don't have a phone, haven't had one. I have a phone, but it's it has- it's um It has- Stripped a, of all the apps or whatever. There's two main apps. It's called MobiSip and Covenant Eyes. There, there might be a better one now, but those, my phone is, I can only use it to take pictures mm-hmm. and to call people or text, that's it. Right. So I can't like look at the internet and I can't, you know. Uh-huh. So it's and a, how long have you been doing that? Five years now. Yeah. Yeah, and it changed my life. I mean, it, it, it has to just make you a happier person. Oh my God, it's like, it's, 
you know, one of the luxuries I, I spend a lot of time and, I, and, and I'm sad that I haven't been able to since COVID in Tanzania with this tribe, the Hadza, they're mm-hmm. a hunter gatherer. Yeah, I remember you talking about that on Rogan. So, I mean, when you wake up in, in your day and what are the things that we say here in our sense? I need a job, I'm looking for a job or, you know, what should I do today? Like when you're, when you're a hunter gatherer, you have a job, it's get food. That's it every day, every day when you wake up, it's get food and there's no free time. So when I come home and the, and the anxiety and the stress and all these things start to build, even without a phone, just living in a city, because the city is an unnatural kind of thing. That free time, that freedom of like having free time is is the thing that, you know, if if I'm if I have free time, I will get into trouble, mm-hmm. right? Uh, idle hands are the devil's playground, all that stuff. Like I will get into some some stuff. So um, to have to wake up and just have purpose, you know. So one of the things is restricting the phone so that I don't even have, I don't, I, I don't know what I don't know. It's just, mm-hmm. and then having things uh, in my life uh, that are meaningful. And, you know, one of the hardest things was doing that, surrendering the phone. And then the second thing was lying, which um, comes in many different forms, right? Like you're a liar. Everyone listening to this thing is a liar. No, I'm not, I'm not a liar. And I go, well, um, there's lying by withholding information. There's lying through storytelling, changing details, exaggeration. And there's, you know, uh, using, that's not lying, but like using humor to like, mm-hmm. you know. Deflect. Deflect, there's all these things. So um, I, it took me forever to just admit that I was a liar. Yeah. You know, I, I was at a place that was pretty severe. They put you on a lie detector every week and they ask you questions and, and you know, my like thing- Like to rewire your brain. Rewire your yeah. brain. I go, this isn't normal. Like no one's gonna put me on a lie detector in real life. They go, we know that. But while you're here and you're getting help, we want you to, and I go, but that's, I, people know me as a storyteller. If I don't exaggerate and like, you know, come up with funny anecdotes and th- like, then, then who am I? And they go, that's fine. There's a, there's a time and place for that. And my brain is so binary with mm-hmm. like, I'm either this guy or this, you can't, you know, and they're like, you can, you can, there's a time and place for things. And it just, it just took forever where the place where I was at was so serious and so depressing and so much trauma and addiction and all these things that I was the class clown, right? Every meeting would end with me going, uh, like yeah. turning a joke into everything. So on one leg, they put a sticker that said no joking. And then on the other leg, it said no lying. So- um, Yeah, all your tools. All my on. tools. And, and they said, look, we're, we're not, they're like, we're not your friend, we're your treatment team. Like you do whatever the fuck you want when you get out of here, but we're not judging you. Yeah. You lying, you, where did you learn how to lie? From your parents, from the way you grew up? You grew up in a very unsafe environment. So you had to train yourself to lie so that you could be safe. So for that, you could be grateful. But guess what? You're not a kid anymore. You don't ever need to lie again, ever. But because it's so ingrained into how you speak, sometimes you just do it without. Mm-hmm. So I go, well, what do I do in that situation? They go, well, you can correct yourself within 24 hours. And I go, what? 
So when you lie and you catch yourself and you tell a story that you've told a million times and then you're like, wait a second, that actually isn't true. And that was like, I mean, that threw my friends. They were like, what the fuck, mm-hmm. who, who are you? <laughs> I right, would say right. something and they would be like, hey, you, you run today? And I'm like, yeah, I did a, I did a quick hike. And, and then, then the next day. And then I'd, be, I'd call them an hour later. I'd go, hey, you know, you know when I said I did a hike? I actually just went outside to get the newspaper. Yeah. And, and well, one of those things was this story that you, you told repeatedly around like the television show thing, right? Right, right. Um, see, I'm even trying to go like, what's, what's the lie and what's the truth? Um, um, I, had, I had just done Howard Stern and Scott Rudin had heard the interview and he said, I, I don't understand how no one's optioned your life for a TV show yet. And um, so I do some quick research, who's Scott Rudin? I'm like, oh shit. He's yeah, the egot. He's mm-hmm. the. He's done everything. You know. He's done. Um, you know. He's done every single TV show that I, I watch and every movie that I like. And he's like, "What if if I was to turn your life into a TV show? What would what would you? How do you see that?" And I'm like, it "Has to be irreverent. Has to be ridiculous. It has to be like curb your enthusiasm. It has to be the most ridiculous version of me and use me at at my expense. Like humiliate the shit out of me. Like the more you make me look like a loser and stuff, mm-hmm. the better." And he's like, I got the perfect guy for you. And so um, this was the rehab I was in Hawaii um, for gambling addiction, or that's what they told me on the phone. And I got there and they'd never heard of it. So I was at this rehab where everyone was there for meth and I was there going. (laughs) Uh, So they, you know, this was probably not appropriate, but a week in, I'd barely just gotten in, they sent, Harris Whittles who had written for Parks and Rec mm-hmm. and Eastbound and Down to to interview me and he um he was interviewing me and and you know there's I don't know like a hundred hours of tape of me telling him all my childhood stories and all the crazy stuff I did. And so that was one one deal. And then the other deal was um uh Bourdain had been and grooming me to, you know, he wanted me to write a book for him on his mm-hmm. publishing label. And he, you know, his, his, his team were like, you know, he's, he's not gonna do this forever, right? So, you know, he's, he's, he wants to pass the mantle at right. some point. And, you know, I'm like, holy fuck. Yeah. He goes, the thing with you and Tony is, you know, I have a show on, I had a show on Vice called Thumbs Up where I hitchhike around the world. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know, a couple people saw that, but you know, and he has like the biggest show <laughs> and, and um, but he goes, but for you to travel and talk to people, that's just your life. It's not like you would have to like do that, you know? So you, your, your life is very similar to his. And instead of the food angle, you could do like an art angle. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, so sick in all of my addictions. And I'm like, and yet once again, I'm being rewarded. I'm getting these TV show deals and and that wasn't the lie. Those things were true. But then I said something on my podcast that got me canceled and all those deals disappeared. And yeah. because I couldn't live with, um, you know, abandonment and rejection is one of my biggest traumas. You don't fucking say no to me. I say no to you. And as long as I'm talking on the mic, edit, remix, mm-hmm. like, Oh, I turned those offers down. Yeah, yeah. The story that you told is that you walked away from that because you had this self-awareness that you didn't (laughs) wanna have a life that was like Tony's that made it very difficult for him to be in public. And you're like, I have enough money. Like, I don't really want that piece of fame. So I don't need that, which made you sound like courageous and heroic. And actually, you know, 
so that it's not so binary. There was truth in that, like, but that option was just taken away. Yeah. Like I, as yeah. I was contemplating, do I want a TV yeah. show? Is this what I want? It was like er, record scratch, right. it's off the table. And I was like, okay, I guess it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, know? Harris overdoses and dies from, <sighs> yeah. So who I knew, I knew him a little bit, not well, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I he he died um, while I was in at the Meadows, and um, you know he had just gone sober. Mm-hmm. So he texted me, and um, one of the reasons why that show didn't move forward was the script that he turned in was horrible, and I was so codependent with him at that point. I didn't know how to. I was like, this guy's one of my favorite writers, and I, and he had told me he had started taking. Um, you know, oxycotton once, mm-hmm. one a night, and um, and and I didn't know what that was until I learned at this place that was supposed to be for gambling that that's like basically heroin. And I was like, "Whoa, you you better be careful, man." And he's like, "Ah, I got it, Dave. I'm all right." So, um, looking back, I'm like, "Man, he asked a lot of like recovery questions when he came to interview me," and I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, maybe he was like trying to get help for himself, you know?" And so when I was at my second rehab at the Meadows, he had um, he had died, but the last text he sent me was, hey Dave, I'm so sorry about that script I sent like a year ago. It was, I don't know if you know, but I was like so messed Love up it. on drugs. It was like the worst thing I've ever written. I owe you a, a, a new script um, and, uh, and I'll see you when I when you get out of this place. Like, try not to have sex with any of the nurses, or you know, something like that. Yeah. Something like Harris. And then, like um, two weeks later, I found out that he had passed, and um, that was my perfect excuse to get out of rehab. I was like, my friend's dead. I got to go to his funeral, and they're like, you just got into treatment, like a real place, not like the place that says they're for gambling. You know, do you think? your friend who's dead now would want that for you. And I was like, fuck you for saying that. Like, fuck, like who the, f- like, he's, he's my friend. Of course, I'm gonna go to his funeral and pay rest. And they're like, your friend died in addiction. Do you think he'd want you to leave? And I, that just made me so angry, but everything made me angry, right? So, right, you, you weren't exactly in a place of surrender. Right, but I did, moment. I did, I surrendered. And they said, yeah. look, um, we can have a memorial service like in the desert, you know, you can pick a place and you can honor him how you want to honor him. And so um, I did that instead, you know, and it's just, um, I've, I've just seen, um, you know, I, I've, I've just been to so many of these places and they're so expensive and, I've, and I go to these AA meetings and they're free and I, and I sit here and it's not me just rebelling just to rebel or or to challenge just to challenge, but it's like whenever Bill started AA, he's like, okay, it was a different time, right? Yeah. So, um, and you know, you've talked to so many people and I've talked to so many people and I sit here and I go, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And yet we all know addicts or we are addicts ourselves. And so there's all this sh- like, isn't the anonymity part of the shame, right? Like, and I think to um, my days as a graffiti artist, right? And I go to, I was on a, on tour with um, this guy Saber and Retina and we go to a strip club and the strippers have 
anonymous name. Hi, I'm Laser. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm like everyone has superhero, supervillain names. Which is and, also derived out of shame. Right. It's all shame. Maybe, maybe protecting them also, because it's dangerous to do that. Right. Weird stalkers and of stuff course. like that. But but it is a it, But now I, we live in a world of yeah. only fans and and, mm -hmm. and porn stars right. are more accepted and sex workers are more accepted and and I've been to meetings where the most powerful, famous people on the planet are there. And yet it's, and I go, can we get rid of, I don't know if we're there yet, but can we get to a place closer where, where um, we get rid of the anonymous part? Yeah, it's, can we it's, have this? it's tricky. Right. It's tricky. I mean, I've made personal choices around my own anonymity or lack thereof, mm -hmm. but I'm also cautious about protecting other people's anonymity. And then the line gets really gray when it comes to just talking about AA generally right. on a public platform because technically it violates one of the traditions. So I never know where that line is because my motivation is I want, to, I want people to understand that this is something that's available to them. I wanna destigmatize it because I had a lot of shame about going into it and I had a lot of assumptions and judgments about what it was based on what I saw on television or movies and having no real connection to it or knowing anybody that was in it because it's anonymous. And yet there still is a lot of stigma, you know, not everywhere is Los Angeles. So, so, so how do we, that's true. Well, we talk, we talk about it. I think we, we talk about it, but we're careful and conscious about the way in which we talk about it. Well, part of the, the 12 steps is is um, higher power, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so for someone who grew up with spiritual and religious abuse, that was the part where I was like, I'll just cut this part out. Yeah. I'll do eleven steps, you know, or I'll do I'll do seven steps. I don't need these. I was like trying to edit, pick and choose, and um, you you bring up tradition, right? That you know, as as humans, we like you know we like a structure, we like tradition, we like you know, and I just had so much trouble with that part. I'm mm -hmm. like, I grew up in a really religious abusive house and I don't, I, don't, I don't pray to God. I don't do any of that stuff, you know? And they go, well, you're gonna have a tough time because you know, and the way they word it is like the higher power of your understanding, right? And I go, I don't understand any higher power. And then I finally had a sponsor that said, I don't care. Mm -hmm. They're like, you're mortal, right? You're a human being. I go, yeah. So your ego, like what, what part of you, thinks that you would ever understand, see or comprehend what God is. And I go, so I don't give a shit if you're like, you know, so you go through all the religions, all the history of the world and you're like, my God is blue and has 20 arms. Mine has a beard, my, you know, I'm like, didn't you say you're an artist? I go, yeah, I'm an artist. Someone made that church. Someone wrote that hymn, someone designed that you know, flying buttress, someone made that, that, that hat. And mm -hmm. like, these are humans, like they might be touched by God, but someone made these things. Like someone drew that portrait of Jesus. Like you're very limiting when it comes to like, why don't you draw your own God? And I was like, whoa, that's a, that's a heavy homework assignment. And he's like, you know, until you, until you do that, like, I, I actually don't care. I want you to get on your hands and knees, which is a very humbling position. Like, Praying, like sitting up, putting your hand, like get like begging position. I need food, I need water. Like, I please, sir, give me your clothes. Like, I want you to get in the begging position and beg for your life back every night. That's how you pray. And so that's how I, that's how I got in touch with my higher power. And then today I, you know, 
um, not trying to use my head too much, but just more my heart. Like, you know, people like to talk about, you know, I'm in the flow or some, you know, something like that. Like, am I in the, and I go, creativity is God. Like us as humans, what differentiates us from other animals? And I go, when I'm creating, that's me praying. When someone's like sitting and like life is boring, I'm in a prison cell or I'm at home and life has no meaning. And it's just like, wait, I got an idea for a song or I wanna try to make a new kind of silverware eating utensil. I got a new idea. Like, I'm like, that is, that is conscious contact with a higher power. That is me directly, God speaking to me and me speaking to God. And so, um, I don't know, that's just the antisocial side of me that's always, questioning, okay, so the 12 traditions are like, we have to be press and media, how we talk about this and that. And I, and I go, what did I learn in all the 12 step meetings I've been to? What did I learn in all the behavioral places, the mental hospitals? Like I've been to so many and it's like, did you have to be the most messed up? Did you have to hit a bottom to go there? Did you have to have an addiction to go there? And it's like, no, I think about school and education. What did I learn? you know, uh, photosynthesis, do I, did, it, did I need to know that? Did I need algebra? All these things I learned and it's like, did I need to learn how to speak up for myself, ask for what my needs are? Did I need someone to show me what a boundary is and how to use it? Like, I mean, like, t I'll tell you something that happened today that um, like, I was like, I was like gleaming on the car right here. It took me like an hour to get here and I was just like, overjoyed. Um, my mom's been doing this like kind of massage thing to me since I was a kid where she, it's a, I guess it's Asian where she mm -hmm. just steps on my back. Mm -hmm. and she's just like all my pressure points. So she saw me and she's like, you're fat. You look fat and disgusting. I go, thanks mom. She goes, your neck, you know, your posture is horrible. And, and you know, I've put on a lot of weight during the pandemic and she's like, get down. I'm going to, I'm going to massage you. And, um, as she's massaging me, she starts talking about some Bible story and um, I, and one of the boundaries I've had in my life is, I'm not telling you how to worship your God, just when you come into my home, like I would, I would like it if you didn't do that. And so the child in me would, would be like, mom, if you fucking do that, I'm never gonna talk to you again. It's very childish, immature. And she already knows mm -hmm. I will talk to her again. So as they say, boundaries without consequences is just a request. Um, so she starts doing that. And then, and then I'm, I'm, I have what the therapist called uh, emotional incest with my mom. Like she, she's enmeshed with me. Yeah, enmeshment. Mm -hmm. So another thing that she said, <laughs> so as you know, lower back, all, you know, Joseph in the Bible and the Technicolor dream coat and whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, I go, oh, this is, I have a voice. I can say, hey, mom, I've asked you not to, you know, but instead because she's literally stepping on me and stepping on me like verbally, um, I didn't say anything. So as she gets higher, she goes, you know, it doesn't really matter who you, you choose to be with, you know, if, who, who you start a family with, they'll never be your mother. And I go, oh, oh. great. And she goes, and I, and then like so and she's loaded. literally stepping on my yeah. head while she's saying this, and she goes like um, physically repressing you. Yeah, physically repressing. While she's you know yeah. laying down the emotional fucking dead weight. It, it, if 
it's so funny and sad at the same time because it's comical. Like, well, her, it's it's driven by her fear. Like she's afraid that she's gonna lose you. Right, and in that moment, I start. I, I can at this point, I'm so in tune with my body that I can go, okay, time to send my mind somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna consciously disassociate because I, I don't. And so I go part of my self-defense mechanisms is humor. So I gotta turn this into a joke now. And I go, so what? So what, mom? Like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, if you get married and you start a family, like, say you kill someone. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> she goes, say you murder someone. Your wife may or may not protect you, but me, you know, I'm gonna hide you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna get you to, you know. <laughs> and I just start, I just start dying. I just start dying. I'm like laughing and I'm laughing because I want to cry, <laughs> you know. And she leaves, you know, she finishes stepping on my head and my neck and then she leaves. And uh asserting her dominance. Yeah. She's like, I'm I'm the the main bitch in your life and mm-hmm. just and, and and don't you forget it, you know. And she leaves and I sit there and I go, I feel horrible right now. You know, I don't feel good and I and I start to think, um, you know, I don't have rich till like eleven. I should go eat a cheeseburger at McDonald's right now. That'll make me feel better. And I go, Oh, how about I reinforce that boundary? You know? So I, I go, I drive to her house before I come here and I say, I open with gratitude and positivity. I go, Mom. So not so it's not like a I don't want it to be a shaming thing yeah. with her. And and I also don't want to go into codependence where I'm like protecting but you're a good mom, you know? I say, Hey mom. I come here with love. You know that I love you. You know how much you mean to me. Uh, and yet I've asked you repeatedly not to, um, and, and this is what my therapist taught me. They're like, if you're cutting someone out of your life, it's one and done, right? You're mm-hmm. like, don't do this. And the next time you do it, you're out. But if it's someone like a family member that you wanna keep in your life, you will have to train them like a dog, like the neuroplasticity stuff. It's like, it's not like you're gonna hold the boundary once and they're gonna learn. You will have to repeatedly do that. So. It, you're gonna have these awkward, uncomfortable conversations, but I'm at the point now where I'm in seven years. So I like awkward, uncomfortable conversations. And so I said, hey, um, I've asked you not to bring up, you know, the Jesus stuff. And I've asked you to not, you know, do this stuff where you're, 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 you own me and you're my property. It's disrespectful to the people in my life and it's not cool. And it doesn't make me feel good. She launches immediately, like the playbook says into mm-hmm. defense. Oh, oh, gaslighting. No, 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 you heard me wrong. That's not what I was saying. Uh, maybe it's because it's English. Let me say it in Korean. It says the exact same thing. And I, and I, I find myself reverting to a 12 year old girl. Yeah. Uh, oh, 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 you're right. You know, you know, and I go, so I've heard everything you said and I still love you. And because you didn't, um, you know, do what I asked when you come to my house uh, to take, because I love you, but I also love myself. Uh, I need a timeout from you and you can't uh, come into my house for the next two weeks. And, and you know, um, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah, I'm cool. And then, um, you know, on the way here, uh, she texted me, you're gonna like this. It's like a her fuck you to me. I'm trying to be as functional and a dysfunctional. <laughs> uh, the thing with that though, is like doing it 
from a place of neutrality. Right. So that you're not triggered and you're not being reactive and you're also not attached to whatever her reaction is or is not, Dude. right? Like she's gonna react however she's gonna react. It's not about changing her behavior. It's about reinforcing that up. boundary so that you're free and you're not carrying around that own, that all that like baggage and shame. Rich, I'm free, man. Yeah. Like I- What did she say? Did you read it? Oh, you want me to read it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's her, it's her. Um, I don't know how, how you wanna take this, but here it is. Okay. Hi, with peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wanna get some things off my chest because it's important for me that I am known. And like, that's also not mm -hmm. how she talks. So someone's definitely mm, writing. Uh, and I have a dog and like, she's asked me, don't bring your dog in the house. And it's like a little dog that's not annoying at all. But because my mom has her own trauma with like a dog biting her when she was in Korea. I do not want dogs in my house. I am uncomfortable and I want this feeling to be respected. This is my house and I need to feel comfortable. And about mealtime. I work very hard on cooking good meals for everyone. I put a lot of love into it. Please from now on, make sure that everyone waits for my prayer before we eat. Please respect me, thank you. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious for so many reasons. Like we spent an hour on that text alone. Like on the one hand, it's awesome that she just completely deflected you yeah, and yeah. didn't acknowledge anything yeah. about what you said and just comes back with her own boundaries, which yeah. on another level, like good for her. Yeah, no. Like she's got some pain around whatever boundary you're disrespecting Absolutely. and she's asserting that boundary, so cool. And so like a dog, it's funny that we're talking yeah. about dogs, all these behavioral places, uh, I'm usually the youngest guy there. Like, you mm -hmm. know, when I was 35, like most of the guys were in their 50s or 60s. And we're learning all these things about neuroplasticity and how to change behavior. And I'm like, these motherfuckers aren't gonna change. Like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. They're not gonna change. It's like, you have to do so much. I do believe in neuroplasticity, but you have to do so much work and yeah. focus and discipline for it to work. And, um, and I get out and I tell my brothers, this is all the shit I learned. And they're like, don't, you think mom's gonna change? Mm. And to her, to her credit, she has. In the last five years, as I like, to me, the reason why I feel good is um, good for her for her boundaries because she yeah. wouldn't have said it like that. And before. not sending you a reactive text, but right. like waiting a little bit, having somebody help her craft the language. Exactly. I mean, putting this some is thought into it. You know, not to make it a race thing. I don't know any Asians that talk like this. Like this is like advanced level karate. <laughs> like I and 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 she did say she did uh -huh. acknowledge me. You know, she yeah. I I set my boundaries and I said, for this reason, this is why you can't come over for two weeks. And then it's for me to just feel mm -hmm. safe in my own house. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, here she is just creeping in again. And uh, she lives five minutes from my house, that's why. Right, right. And so any other time in my life, number one, I could never say that to my mom. I'm your fucking mother, you don't talk to me that way. If I'm crossing your boundaries, good. You know how much shit I did for you? You know how much stuff I had to go through to bring you here? So, I, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. keep it down. So not only would I not bring it up, if I brought it up, it would be so much shame on like, but you know, but if you don't want to, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, 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 maybe not two weeks, oh, maybe three days, you know, like it would be a lot of backpedaling, apologizing, gotta make sure she's okay. And all of it goes to, she's my elder, she's my mom, I respect her, you know, um, and, and the, the mortality of it. How much longer is she gonna live? Yeah. 10, 20, 30 years. I guess I'll just 
you know, at the cost of me, I guess I'll just keep myself down for the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. And, and to now to speak up, it's like, she's an adult, she can take it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so everyone in my family's noticed, they're like, wow, mom mm-hmm. has changed. And so it's just, is that addiction stuff? It is because it's such a strange sentence to say out loud. My mom said something about God to me. I didn't know how to feel about it. So I lost a million dollars at the casino and had sex with prostitutes <laughs> I didn't want to. Yeah. That's my old, uh-huh. it's, like, it's like, that's what happened. My mom said something to me. So now I did something so that my body would get hurt or someone, you know, I went on a podcast and said outrageous things about her so that I would, you know, I would feel more shame and people would hate me more or I could end up canceling. Like that's how it would manifest yeah. myself. And, and there was- And beneath it all is this child who is, is, is deeply sensitive and, yeah. and like naturally very empathetic. Who, who has trouble processing all of the emotional stimuli that the world is throwing at him, compensates for that through all manner of behaviors and creating all kinds of chaos, only to return to this place where he has to heal himself so that he can embrace his natural tendency toward empathy and celebrate his sensitivity. See, immediately yeah. as I wanna make a joke right now, but I just, right. I, instead but it's I just- true, like when I like, when you, the, the minute you walked in here, mm-hmm. you defied my expectation of how you were gonna comport yourself because you were very calm and you were kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with you is, is seeing, you know, kind of a little bit of the crazy. Mm. And then in watching your show, which is the whole reason that, you know, we came together today. Like I see somebody who like the whole motivation behind the show, it seems to me, at least what I got out of it, is your ability to to sit with people in their pain and and kind of um, celebrate our shared brokenness as something beautiful? Mm. Yeah, I I appreciate you saying all of that. I so to go from the lies of the TV shows I had <laughs> to. Uh-huh. I have no desire to be on TV and yet I am on TV, right? Like yeah. I, there's no part of me like, you're oh. Just, you're a walking conundrum you know, <laughs> in that or like you're, you know, you're, I mean, hypocritical, I think is, is cast like a negative connotation on it, but you're, you're, you contradict yourself. And part of that is what it means to be an artist, I think, at least in your case. It's so fun for me to have like Bourdain's team call me or David Chang or, you know, whoever and say, hey, can you, come on the show for, you mm-hmm. know, I hop in, I hop out. I have none of the pressure of carrying the show. It's fun for me. Um, my life is a life of service now. That's something I'm also working, you know, I do, I can never say it's so difficult. My therapist said, it's so easy for you to to play the heel, right? That's, that's how you get high. That's um, the more you play the heel, the more people talk about you, the more attention you get, the more money you get, the more all this, for you to go and say what you really do with your life, which is give your time to helping people, mm-hmm. you know, donate to all these things anonymously. Once again, anonymous, I go, well, it's such a douchey thing to be like, I donate to this and this. And they go, well, why not tell people what you do? Because as someone who people, some people do look up to you and look to you as a role model for you to say, hey, I, you know, on the Joe Rogan thing, talking about mm-hmm. the Hadza, 
tons of people uh, donated money and, and are helping with the cause now and actually helping those people. And and I go, yeah, I still feel weird because it's like, look at me. I'm mm. And I don't wanna be that guy that's like, I donate, I'm the hero. So I hide all the good things I do because I don't want to, I don't know that there's some kind of shame with someone saying it's, I feel way more comfortable when people are like, you know, I, I look at some of the replies uh, of the show. They're like, oh, the show changed my life. It's great. And my friend was gonna kill himself. He watched the show, it was great. And I just go through that. And then there's one going, you're, you're a fraud. Your show is, a, it's mm -hmm. the garbage. Like it's unwatchable. And I go, oh, here we go. Yeah. Now I like this, you know? <laughs> so it goes back to everything I'm talking about right now. I go, I'll, I'll spend an entire day with the kid and he'll think nothing's wrong with him. But, and yet he's suicidal and he's, I, you know, I can't, it's not drugs, it's not alcohol, but, and yet I, and then, so I'll, I'll, I'll give my life force and my energy to this kid. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm so happy that I was able to help one other person. And then my ego flares up and goes, fuck, if that day was filmed and it was on TV, then I could have helped hundreds, millions of people, you know, whatever. And yet it's just to be like, that was enough. I was enough that day and, you know, mm -hmm. and so, I always believe like, and this is something I'm working on, but I, I believe 100% that nobody believes in me. You know, I've been in pitch rooms, I've pitched TV shows before. And you know, the way those two TV show deals got pulled out because I said something on a podcast, I go, okay, so I don't, and, and, and we live in a fear-based society, fear-based religion, fear-based, you know. Uh, so I go, okay, the only way for me and, and the way I look at, the show show, my TV show is, is how can I give back the things I've learned um, to the most amount of people? And I go, is it on social media? Well, that's one component of it. But, you know, at this point, I still don't know too many kids that watch TV. Most kids I know watch YouTube and TikTok. Um, but I go, I think TV is still relevant enough. And, um, you know, there's something going on in, Topanga, <laughs> Malibu, this area, like you, Rick Rubin, Neil Strauss, mm -hmm. like there's there's like, um, I'll be honest, like I feel more comfortable now than now that we've sat here for a little bit, but like Neil Strauss is a friend of mine. He's mm -hmm. one of the smartest guys I know. Yeah, he's I'm very one of my, good friends with Neil. Yeah, he's one of my favorite writers. I, I know that you know him. And I talked to him close to nine to 12 hours I, I don't remember because it went into the night and then the next day. When you, oh, you mean when you were taping that yeah. episode? So uh -huh. he's actually in the TV show for like, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes maybe uh, or less. But that day I was so intimidated in the same way when I was coming here. I'm like, he's so smart. He has so much information in that brain. He talks so fast. He's so witty. He's so clever. And so I just, I'm like, oh man, I got to study. I got to, you know, I got, you know, like in the same way, so many people in treatment, um, you know, the, the way it, when you see it physically, when someone physically transforms their body into a bodybuilder and they're like, mm -hmm. look at how strong I am. No one can ever hurt me. You know, my dad beat me, but no one ever is gonna, I'm, I'm a UFC muscle man fighter. No one's ever gonna fight me. Um, so many of the people that I've met in treatment are, are geniuses, right? They're brilliant. They're, they, they have these, They've, they've invented stuff. They've started entire economies. So their brains are, they, they, 
and, and, and as the therapist says, you're not gonna outsmart, outrun out an emotion. No matter what, you know, you think of Facebook, you're like, wow, this brilliant guy started a social media giant because he wanted to have sex with women. Right. And you think of Elon Musk, you're like, this guy is gonna get us to Mars because he wants to run away from his dad, right? Like, it's just, what are we gonna do when we get to Mars? We're gonna mess up Mars. Like, why don't you just go to therapy? Like, and it's like that fear. He's like, I'm less scared uh-huh. of Martians and Mars than what's what I'm gonna find yeah. out here, you know? Yeah. So I go and to be and to be living your life unconsciously reacting to that thing, you know, right. and just action after action after action after action. Created warrior life man. around some wound. Wounded warriors, man, my entire- that You think that you can just push away I thought and not I, deal with. And, and that's why I guarantee you that you can run longer than me. But if we went out in the parking lot and did a 50 meter dash, I can beat you because I'm a sprinter 100%. and I can, I can run so fast. And, and you know, when I was doing thumbs up, when I was doing like, when I was like, yeah, and I'm a gambler and I'm a da, 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 people are like, what are you running away from? And it was that unconscious like, I just can't sit still for one second. If I sit still for one second, then, then discomfort. Uh, it's discomfort. Yeah. So even sitting with Neil and then doing that talk, I know he had just started doing a podcast of reopening murder trials. And I felt great fear for his child, for his wife. And I just sat in that. I was like, I'm not gonna outsmart Neil Strauss. He's mm. smarter than me. He's more brilliant than me. I just wanna tell my friend how I feel. And he was talking circles around me and trying to, someone needs to do it, Dave. Like someone needs to like, and I go, but, but why you? And, and he, and so for hours, just verbal sparring and like, and then finally after we finished, he got in the car, he's driving back to Malibu and I call him and he's like, I got to apologize to you. And I was like, what? He's like, well, you were just trying to tell me how much you love me and how you're worried about me. And I just went into like, intellectualism mm-hmm. and, and I was like, fuck, I wish you could have said that on the show. And he's like, well, I, I owe you another better interview. So he came back and we talked for another mm-hmm. six hours and then he was way more vulnerable then. And I was like, these are conversations I've never yeah. seen in my life on television. And so um, in my mind, this is my life. In my life, I get naked with other men. I, I, I share every part of me and they share their, and we cry together and I do this with everybody. And so when people go, oh, that's such a brave thing you did or whatever, it's just my norm. So when it was time to put something like this on television, people were, you know, there was a lot of episodes that got pulled. Mm. You know, there's in in the last seven years, I've interviewed over 2000 people and no one's, in the same way, no one has ever heard some of these podcasts and I have thousands of paintings no one's ever seen. there's still fear in me. I go, I have a lot to share and it's completely unedited. Like it's just the whole spectrum of human and everyone who cares about me and is, is saying, don't put that stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And so I, so I go, you know what? Uh, one of the things that rich people tell other rich people is don't pay for your own stuff. Like, why would you pay? You know, you can get other people to pay for it. And I go, well, when other people pay for it, they get creative control, whatever. So I made the show exactly the way I wanted to. I talked to, you know, all these people that I know or know of. And and uh it, it was 
I don't know if television is the medium for me because there is, they call it uh, streaming wars for a reason. Mm -hmm. There's all these analytics and stuff that people go, okay, if you get Seth Rogen on your show, then you get more views. And you know, like, and I, I'm just trying to, um, it's the question I asked you earlier. For me to do a show like that, I, I know that I'm helping people and, and I'm helping myself, but what's the cost of that? Right? What is I don't know, what is the cost of it? I mean, my sense in watching it is that it's very clear that it's this heart-centered piece. Um, it's so creatively unique in its expression that it could only be you. So it's definitely, um, you know, this sense of like living in your mind or, 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 or kind of living inside of one of your paintings. And it's a reflection of all of this work that you've done. Like as somebody, you know, who's steeped in recovery and therapy and the like, like those are conversations that I have, that I've learned to have, that I look forward to, that I appreciate, that are, you know, so important to my life but I'm also very aware that that's not the norm with most people. So mm -hmm. how do you give people a sense of, of what that can be like for them, the healing power mm. of that and the beauty. And, and I think that you found a way to do it in a really entertaining and creative way, leading with vulnerability mm. and guiding people who perhaps have no uh, you know, prior experience with anything like that mm. to show them not only like, are these conversations okay to have, but just how empowering they can be. And when you hear someone like, you know, Neil or Steve-O or, or, you know, the other people that you've had, like share their pain mm -hmm. and you realize like, these are human beings. We don't get out of life alive. We all have our troubles and our obstacles and the things that we faced and had to overcome. It humanizes everybody. And I think there's, it's like this healing frequency that comes out from the screen that, is unusual in our media landscape right now. And I think that's why I personally like responded to it. And, and you know, not to down, thank you for saying all that, not to downplay, but you know, the show is not a cultural phenomenon. Like sure. in my mind, I, I mean, it's a hard sell, you know, it's not my like, best friend called yeah. me and said, you know, the show is you, I know you, I love it. It's like, I was crying watching mm -hmm. it. And yet I had to watch it like porn. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like every time my wife came in, I had to like shut it off. Or, and she's like, what are you watching? And there's no way I can watch a show like that with my wife without having an uncomfortable conversation after. And that's a conversation I don't wanna have. Mm. And so- Maybe that's a conversation he needs to have though. Right, well, that's what I would say. Yeah. And so I, I sit there afterwards and I go, oh, there's a lot of people that are saying, hey, you know, I watched that show alone in my room. And I go, well, why don't you watch it? with your husband or wife or your parents or your kids. And they're like, no, thanks. So there's there's people, you know, when I had Erica Garzon talking about her addiction to masturbation and porn, um, I had a, another close friend say, you know, I have monitoring software on my kid's phone. So I know how much my 15 year old mm -hmm. watches porn. It's like a lot. And yet I have no entry point on how to have that conversation with him. So I said, hey, you wanna watch Uncle Dave on this TV show? And it was uncomfortable as hell. You're talking about porn, she, you know, the woman's talking about porn and I'm sitting there with my son and I know he watches all the stuff. He doesn't know that I watch it and there's all this shame coming up. And yet, because you put that out into the world, we were able to have mm. a, a talk about that afterwards. And I was like, 
That's awesome. That's what it's yeah. about, man. Yeah. And even if that talk doesn't happen, it's like going to an AA meeting before you're ready to get sober. Like you don't you don't walk out of there and get struck sober. Right. But a right. seed is planted and it's kind of like once you've had been exposed to that, like you can't quite shake it, right? It's right. like kind of ruminating around in your consciousness. So I want to plant as many seeds as I can. And um when someone goes, Hey, have you tried this new therapeutic, you know, EMDR, or, you know, whatever, like mm-hmm. psychodrama, I go, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Enough said, I'm I'm in. And they go, Well, it's really expensive and it's you know, they don't let everyone in. I go so I've been to all these places and the the ceiling that's always hit is that it's a business, right? It's like, you know, whenever, as they say in the, in the treatment, like you have a breakthrough, right? It's like, um, well, how do you feel right now, Dave? Well, I'm gonna fucking break all these cameras right now. Well, you, you can't do that. All right, so I guess I, you know, I thought I thought this was a safe place. I thought I could do whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so I found that I was having these amazing breakthroughs and I was watching people who I thought would never have breakthroughs, like people that remind me of my dad and people that remind me of like my younger self having these amazing breakthroughs. And yet you're still in an office building, right? You're still sitting in chairs uh-huh. in office, and I'm like, Let, let's, let's go outside and like, and they're like, Dave, this, you know, there's a dentist's office out, like you can't do, do that. And I go, oh, you can, but I can. I have creative license. I have artistic license. I could, so um, you know, I, I I tell everyone like I'm not a guru. I'm not a therapist. Even though I've probably been in rooms with group therapy, one-on-one therapy. You know, I've seen. You know, I've been at rehab centers that are meant to be like thirty days, ninety days, mm-hmm. and I've been there for two years. You know, mm-hmm. so I'll I'll have been there when you're there, and then six months later, I'll right. be like, wait, are you married to? And so I'll hear your wife's side of the story and then I'll hear your kid's side of the story. So I've, <laughs> I, I have a lot of yeah. this information in my head and I go, oh, wow, like this is a lot. And I feel like, you know, all the, all the things that I do of helping people, donating money and my time, it's like, it, it never gets, it's like, oh, you give a home, you know, I'm like, oh, I give a homeless guy some money mm-hmm. and some clothes and some food. It's like, he's, not making light of what I did, I helped him for that day, for that moment. But is, did that get to the root of it? Did that get the, the, the brokenness? And I go, how can I, you know, it's like as someone who has privilege, who has wealth, like what is my best way to serve myself and humanity and help one another? Cause you get to, you know, like when we had Trump as president, like, man, fuck this guy, he's a horrible. And it's like, you know, just as well, there's a broken child in there. There's a hurt mm. child in there. And and does that, is there any place in our culture for a guy, if he woke up the next day and was like, man, I've messed up, I wanna change. It's like, no, there's, it's just kill that guy, like down with him. And, yeah. and so it's it's so polarizing. And even with myself, you know, you get into any treatment, you know, you go to Narcotics Anonymous and it's like, there's a hierarchy, right? It's like, oh, well, we're, we're into opioids and you, all you do is smoke weed and, you know, oh, I, I had more trauma than you and this and that. And I, I, I sit there and I go, if, if there's no room in our culture for redemption and change. So I, I, as someone who's is like me, who is so judgmental, who is a hater, I always try to lead with love and, and so I've, I've been asked to do 
such hard things in my recovery, you know? Um, there's people that are, you know, in recovery. I, I meet murderers and rapists and people that, that are in prison still and have done horrendous things who've ripped people off and, and who, who, who should be in prison. And so I'll meet them and I'll be asked to sponsor them. I'll be asked to, to work with them. And I go, absolutely not. Like I, I think that person should burn in hell and be in prison. And they go, um, and can you also help them? Can you want them to burn in prison and hell and also help them? And I go, fuck, I got to think about that. Because for you, like um, if someone's, out there and they've been a horrible person and they should be in prison and yet they're not in prison and they're still out and they wanna change is shaming them and yelling at them. Um, so I, I, had, I had these experiences where I would meet people and I go, and I would be able to tell them, I'd be like, I feel uncomfortable sitting next to you right now. I know you got out of prison early. I believe you should still be in prison and should be there till, till you die. And yet, because you're not in prison and I'm not judge, jury, executioner, um, I'm willing to work with you if you are serious about changing because it doesn't help for someone who's like that to live in, because he's just mm -hmm. gonna be in society worse. Mm -hmm. And so, as they say, nothing changes if nothing changes. I, I was ready to sail off in the sunset, done with podcasting. I don't like the anxiety that comes with speaking behind a microphone. Um, I don't need to be on TV. All all those real things of why, I, you know, before they took the, those opportunities away, um, why I did um, decide, well, well, what I was deciding whether or not to do TV, what I did see in Bourdain, what I did see what fame and workaholism did to him. I was like, I'll just do the one-on-one -on -one thing in private, no cameras. I don't need to broadcast this. I'll just help people the way I help people and, you know, but there's the ego and the workaholism is like, but I need to help everyone. Mm -hmm. I got to help the whole world. Like I need to, you know, I got to change everything. And, and um, you know, I sat in it and I, I already knew that there, there would be no network that would show that show. So I went ahead and filmed it, made it myself. And then FX stepped in and their whole logo is yeah. fearless, you know? And they, they said- And they didn't um, get involved editorially with trying to there change was a little anything? Bit. There was a little mm -hmm. bit, it was a conversation. I took uh, the Louis deal, you know, Louis CK, uh, you know, created, edited, did everything yeah. for less money. So I was like, I'll take that deal. Yeah. I don't need to get paid. I never did this for the money. Um, so I took less money for more creative control. And, um, you know, they were concerned, you know, like mm -hmm. all the, no one else would sit down with me. Here's, here's the thing that's about the shame and, and anonymity is, Someone at all those companies knows who I am. They're like, dude, I love you on Vice. I love Thumbs Up. Right. I love- But we just can't do uh, it. And they go, but yeah, we're not, not gonna, gonna work. do it. This, this show comes out, the new show. And I have some of the biggest celebrities on the planet reach out to me and they go, dude, I, I don't even know who you are, but someone mm -hmm. turned your show on. I watched all four episodes yeah. and I was like, cool. Can you, can you be the next guest? Can you tweet about it? And they're like, no, no, no. This is, really? just, this is just me privately telling you this. And I go, oh, okay. So that's that's how mm. deep those things run, and um, you know I'm, I'm forever grateful to everyone at FX because they're 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 so cool to work with, and they put out all these challenging uh, TV shows and stuff with like the anti-hero, and yeah. they said, listen, um, we, you know, because the show was already done, they're like, this is like this, the world needs to see this. This is amazing. 
um, we're just worried that like you might get canceled or you know you've you have such a crazy history of insane things you've done and said. And I was like, oh, is that what you're worried about? That's easy for I'll, let me let me make the decision for you. Hard pass on David Joe. And and they go. And like, didn't you like learn your lesson with like Louis and all this other stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they go, but also you have a history of of doing that reverse jujitsu maneuver where you know you take it off the table and it just wants they want it more. I don't know if I was doing. Re- I mean, thank you for saying that. I mean, but that might not have been your motivation, but that's the psychological. I just impact wanted. Of, I just of wanted like to know that. that everyone had, so I could be clear. I'm like, everyone has now rejected me, uh-huh. so now I can just become a YouTuber. Right. Like that's. Yeah, that's. I was like, once everyone has said no. I mean, it would have been huge on YouTube if you had done that. I mean, and ultimately, that's my. I I don't know. I, and maybe I, more people would have seen it. But it always comes down to this, and which is also the you know the hesitancy to come here today is when you do anything like that, outreach, recovery work, something where you're putting out a positive message, showing change, um, you will help people. But then comes with that an expectation, you know. And and when you spoke earlier about, so the show's doing good, and and it was one of my biggest fears talking to Neil Strauss and other like really smart, brilliant people in recovery is going to any of these behavioral places and learning about addiction and behavior. You're going to learn all these tools, and in the same way, like learning the force, you can use it for the light or the dark mm-hmm. side. So. I've met people who are like brilliant in recovery and yet their lives are falling apart. And they, they, they go into this martyr thing. And like, like I, you know, I don't know Tony Robbins, but every time I see him speak, I'm like, holy shit, this guy is like brilliant. And he's, he's so selfless in helping all these people. And he seems like a douche, hmm. you know, it's like two things. I'm like, it, I'm like do, would I ever wanna be that guy? It's so weird. Like he's helping so many people through and that's priceless and that's invaluable and yet. Yeah, but like, your self-awareness around that piece is the differentiator. Like you're, mm. you have a, a conscious awareness that you, that a fear like of, of suddenly, you know, kind of moving in that, that kind of weird guru direction. Mm. And I don't see that as a threat. It just doesn't feel like any part of your sensibility whatsoever. And you know, what you had said earlier, um, was this piece about like thinking about how you can be of service and like yes you can you can be of service in a one-on-one basis with you know that hard case dude or whatever mm-hmm. it is but ultimately like when i look at you and i think about service more broadly like what is it about you like what can you do that no one else can do there's other people with tons of money mm-hmm. there's other people that have more sobriety than you and have been to more rehabs and are more steeped in you know, the, the literature of psychology. The one thing that you have that no one else has is this very unique artistic ability to express yourself in a very particular way. Mm. And, and for you to channel that in the direction, like in this, in this vein of like gratitude and service and, and kind of raising the bar on the kind of conversations that we can have so we can help each other and heal each other. Like that's a gift, man. And that's why I think the show you know, is a reflection of your very particular sensibility. But to me, it's coming from that, that place. And personally, like selfishly, like I wanna see you do more of that because that's something nobody else can do. Mm. Do you want me, do you wanna see me do more of that or would you like to participate well, in that? No, what I'm saying is I want you to embrace that aspect of who you are rather than resist it. And, and to do it like with everything that you've learned about 
where your ego sits and what your relationship to it is so that you don't you know, succumb to some of the things that Tony did or fall prey to workaholism and the like, because but that's you've the got thing that is recovery also recognizing, in the tank. But that's the, also the thing is recognizing I'm not beyond that. Right. Just because I'm healthy but now doesn't sure, mean I could fall sure. back into that. But it's an opportunity for you to reframe your relationship with what you do and do it in a healthy way rather than just create a boundary and say, I'm not gonna do it because it's too treacherous or dangerous. Like, is that a possibility for you? The, the, you know, the, that's, you know, I feel like, as they say, you peel back the layers of the onion. I feel like, like today I'm not in crisis of all the things that mm-hmm. used to plague me. And the, the like kind of final boss is the workaholism. You know, there is a side of me that loves to numb out and dis, like, and of, of course, in the spirit of helping people, right? Yeah. To spend less time with my family and my, and my, and my friends and, and everything. And I have a, a, like an amazing, what I, you know, if you talked to me seven years ago would consider a very boring life, but it's, it's, it's a purposeful, meaningful life. It's, um, you know, there's times where things are hectic, but you know, it's a pretty like mellow mm-hmm. life in that uh, there's, there's something deep in within me that's like, why are you going to sleep right now? You, there's so much more energy. You can, you can pull an all nighter right now. Well, you know now that you won't be present for your family the next day then, but you can you can work on so many projects right now. You know you have that capability. Like that's my Iron Man, mm-hmm. right? I can mm-hmm. not sleep, no coffee, no drugs, and work on thirty projects and start an art show and an immersive experience and develop other. You know, I can do that, and um, you know, just in the same way, I like most of those interviews in my show were from two years ago. That's how long it took to get that show onto TV. It took more work to get that on the TV than to actually make the show. And what happens when you put the show out, people go, when's the next season? Right. I'm like, I worked on that with Paco and the guys from the Philippines. I mean, we like, like, I know it's not the way you do normal TV, but we did something on every frame of that. Like there's so much stuff that we put in there subliminally and, and hidden messages and stuff that uh, there was a lot of thought put into it and people to go, someone's like, I'm like, how about sit with the thing that we made? And like, is one season enough? Does there have mm-hmm. to be a season two? And and these types of things. So I'm, I'm trying, like I, I'm impulsive. You know, I like to just make decisions without thinking about it and to, you know, once again, that whole thing with like waiting in line, like I don't like waiting. I don't like sitting in silence. I don't like, I have to just run. I have to just get to the next thing. So um, to sit here and be like, um, like you said, all this reframing and re-measuring these things uh, because I did a show um, in an office building about three, four years ago where I had to fight against my ego and tell people you can't bring your phone in, you know? And I was like, well, then how are people gonna see it online? And, and I was like, well, maybe just the people that come see it, that's, that's enough, you know? And, and, um, and so, and, and the other thing is, can you really experience something truly when there's thousands of people coming through there? Mm-hmm. So I limited it to groups of seven and, and, the, and you went in through the whole show with like a guide and I implemented like all these things that I learned and um, and I was part of the show too. And it was the first um, phase of the Cho show. And 
I had no, I had no idea how much that was going to take out of me, like physically and mm. and, and spirit, like emotionally, like, um, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, we had a hundred people a day coming in through the show when we could have had thousands, and and I had um, a staff of like hundreds of people, like this is just financially not viable in in a treatment center, right? Like if you went to a treatment center and you have like a few therapists and you have your group, this, like I had a team of like hundreds of people catering to just you. And some of these people would just be on the floor crying all night. So I had to find therapists to treat the staff after. Mm. And meaning somebody comes in for this experience and they're they're exposed to some form of yeah you would fill out some an version of what you experienced in treatment right where so getting... I went through <laughs> yeah and I went for years uh-huh. and I go people aren't going to take years off to do this so I'm going to try to fit it into a four hour experience right, right. and um, it was um, I mean it, it it floored me I I I I it took so much out of me and yet. Um, you know, the show cost me a tremendous amount of money and, and I could have monetized it. I could have charged people and people would have gladly paid. And after the show, um, there's a guy who lent me use of the building for free mm. and he's a billionaire. And he's, he, you know, when I told him originally what I was gonna use the show for, he's like, Dave, I like that you're giving back and I'm gonna give you a great price. And I was like, why don't you just give it to me for free? He's like, that's not how business works. Mm-hmm. You don't just, I go, well, you're rich and I'm rich. And I, why don't you just like, I just told you I'm doing this to help people. And he's like, I like how blunt you are. Okay. So he let me use that building for free. And at the end of it, his entire family had gone through. And he's like, when you were explaining it to me, I didn't get it. But now that we've gone through and I've seen it bring my family closer together, let's take this show on the road. I got buildings you know, he's a real estate guy. I got buildings in every city in the world. Mm. And um, like, and so my workaholism goes, this is gonna be a hit yeah. show. Like let's, and I, and I had to sit there and it took a, you know, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say it. it took like seven people in my life to like sit me down and be like, look at how messed up you are right now. You just put everything into helping and entertaining and doing all this stuff for these people. And you have to respect how, what a psychic toll that took on you. And so we get it that you can like disassociate and just take this show on the road for the next couple of years. But in a, in a, in, you know, with all the things you learn, can, can you be kind to yourself? Because mm. I don't even know what that means. Because my whole life I've treated myself the same way. Like if I think about the most verbally and physically abusive girlfriends I've had, that's how I treat myself. I talk down to myself, I say, I'm no good. And so uh, I don't want to sit in that. So I, I go, so me taking a vacation after this would be kind to myself. And they're like, yeah, yeah. like you just did a lot of heavy lifting. But in my mind, I go, but it was only 2000 people. It should have been, you know, 200,000 people. And it's always that it's like, I wanna, I wanna help everyone. And as long as I'm helping people, I never have to help myself. I can focus on helping everyone but myself. Right, it just becomes a way to avoid or deflect Right. that piece that's the hardest, which is learning to love yourself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was um, yeah. So I'm here today and, and my life's quite simple. And I, you know, it's all these, this is the way recovery was explained to me. The concept of getting better is very simple. 
It's not complicated, right? I just, conscious contact with your higher power, service work, blocking your phone, like there's action, exercising, you know, um, eating healthy. These are all like, none of these are like hard concepts to understand, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's simple, but it's very hard. Like it's gonna take me uh, an incredible amount of willpower after this interview to drive home without stopping at Burger King. Like that's just you the truth. You want to give you a ride? Make you can, sure you don't yeah, do get me to the next exit and <laughs> yeah. then- uh, I'll escort you out of here. Yeah. You can do it. Thank you. You uh, just you just saying that like you can do it is that's, you can do it. That's a nice it positive. Is, it's thing. definitely within your power. <sighs> yeah, man. I'll let you know if uh, mission accomplished or not. We'll yeah. see. Um, well, uh, you know, we should round this out, but I I, I don't want to let you go without you know maybe a few words for the one who still suffers, the mm. one being the many, because I think there's a lot of people who you know struggle in silence with some form of compulsive behavior or addiction to substance or mm-hmm. process in some way. I mean, I just feel like this is the, you know, problem of our age. Like it's just metastasizing like crazy. So whether it's gambling or food or phones or sex or shopping or drugs and alcohol, whatever it is, like I feel like almost all of us struggles in one way or the other along this very broad spectrum. And finding a way out is really hard for most people. So for the one who's still suffering right now, I just wanna tell you, um, once again, I don't wanna make it about race, but I've been to, you know, you guys have heard me now, I've been to all these treatment facilities. I've seen in seven years of treatment, two other Asian people. It's not part of our culture. Um, and the last one almost threw me out because it was my voice speaking to me in the form of another kid. I was at a meeting and a kid came in and he was Korean and he saw me and he, I could tell right away he recognized me. And at the end of the meeting, he's like, Dave Cho, you're rich, you're famous. You, you, what are you doing here? Like, like I wasn't, and, and as he was saying that in my head, I was like, you're right, what am I doing here? I'm better than this. And, and that almost took me out. I was like, I, I don't need to be here. I am better than these mm. people. So if you're listening now and no judging, I don't care what video games, porn, uh, the internet, YouTube, binge watching TV, food, whatever your thing is, no judging. The same brain that got you into this mess is not the one that's gonna get you out. You need a hand and all those tools, all these electronics, all these things that are used for evil and, 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 to, and to numb you and, and distract you, you can use those same tools to, you know, I've been to these places that cost money, but there's so much free services. There's literally a 12 step program for every addiction. And if you think you are any of these things, you just, am I a workaholic? Mm-hmm. Just type in characteristics of a workaholic and you'll see if you are very quickly. Um, you probably are because we live in a nation. Everyone goes, hey, America is a nation of immigrants, right? But that all that means is we're a nation of workaholics because we came, everyone came here for something better. And mm-hmm. that means work your ass off. So even if you're not a workaholic, your family's workaholic and um, all these things, we, we, it's not, it's not gonna be you on your phone alone, watching porn alone, playing video games alone. It's through connection. And so reach out, ask for help, tell someone, you know, as, as, as 
you know, when, when you ask anyone in society, hey man, how are you doing? Most people will give you the answer, fine, good, okay. All of which aren't emotions. That's our, our, our automatic response, I'm okay. I mean, you could have the worst thing happening in your life today and be like, I'm fine, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So to just, it's okay, you're not okay. Um, and that doesn't mean like you're not gonna be okay forever. You just ask for help, there's support. And as someone, you know, my life today, I can't get through it without this. You know, I have, I'm part of a men's group. I, I go to 12 step meetings regularly on Zoom, which is the easiest it's ever been. It's, there's kind of a disconnect with mm-hmm. the Zoom, but still better than nothing. I have a therapist that I see and it's like, there's a part of my addict brain that's like, you need to go talk to someone once a week for an hour about, you know, and I go, do you know how much time I spent in casinos and at strip clubs and like all these places, like I can't spend one hour a week on, <laughs> yeah. on myself. So um, there's help out there. It's not hopeless. And I wish for all my friends that killed themselves and for the times in my life where I contemplated suicide and, you know, I mean, we live in a society where it's normalized, where it's more okay to kill yourself than to ask for help. That's where we're at now. Someone would rather murder themselves than to go, hey man, I'm really having a tough time uh, stopping watching television or, or, or whatever your problem is. It, there's, there's no judging um, and we need it. We're not equipped to deal with what's happening in the world. So the way we get through it is through connection and um, you know, all these social media, all these things were invented to connect and we're more disconnected than we've ever been. So, um, and I guess I'll just, because I'm with you right now, are you suffering today from anything? Um, a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm overtired, I'm mm. overcommitted. I have been working too hard. Uh, I won't challenge you to sure. the race then today the, the, yeah, the sprint, but I'll challenge you. Um, I, I can like predict what I think will happen, but uh, you said uh, not a year and you have, you know, um, you know, your podcast is growing. The way I heard about it is you're worshiped at uh, Sierra Tucson and all these like, uh, mm. you, they listen to you religiously. So it's like weird. It's like, oh man, I'm getting bigger and better guests. and. It's intoxicating. Um, so having a healthy relationship with that. So know. I challenge you to take six months off. Yeah. And spend that's time. A, that's a heavy challenge. It's a heavy challenge, yeah. but I know you're up for it and you've done heavier things. I can guarantee you, you won't lose one fan, one listener. When you come back in six months, you may have more fans, more listeners. Um, it doesn't mean these guys can't keep working. They can recut best ofs or whatever. Um, more time focusing on yourself, your family, and um, it's it'll change your life. Yeah, I'm not going to commit to that I'm right not here asking, now. I'm, I'm ch- but it's a I, challenge. But, this, but I, what I will commit to is I'm going to think about that, and I'm going to do that like like honestly, and do an inventory around that because I think that's insightful. Um, thanks, man. Thank you, man. Yeah. How do you feel? I feel. Um, I feel calm. I feel um, less than a little bit, not a lot, just because I have, um, well, you kind of said it, it's like, you're like, I kind of expected you to come in hot, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And that's usually what I do. I don't meditate. I like get myself like kind of amped up. It's like, I take, um, I take podcasting and broadcasting very seriously. I hate when people just show up and dial it in. Like um, I was up last night, I had like tons of material and stuff. I, I barely touched on any of it, but um, I kind of, uh, you know, my closest friends don't watch anything I do because they go, you're kind of gross. Mm-hmm. Cause you, you go into this cartoon character of who you are and we know the real you. So, but there's that always part of me that's always wanting to be like, um, I don't know who Rich's had on here, but when I come in here, I gotta yeah. fucking blow him away. And this yeah. has gotta be the best show he ever does. And it's a performance, but I mean, um, so, my thinking going into it was, he's gonna come in like that. And my job's gonna be to figure out how to get him to get him past that, you know? Oh, no, I but came But you in, came in past it already. Well, because the way I learned about you is all, all people in recovery were like, you gotta listen to this guy, mm-hmm. Rich Roll. And like, you, you won't, the way you go on to these other shows, you have to kind of school them on what addiction is and mental health. And he's like, he's already, you don't have to explain things to mm-hmm. him. So you can just be yourself. And that's like, um, there's something liberating about that. Like I can just be, Yeah. but then, um, you know, there's always, you know, everyone I interviewed on my show was close, you know, the, 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 the shortest ones would be three hours, but they would go plus six hours usually. Mm. And um, that's my workaholism of, it took me years for me to have breakthroughs, but I'm trying to get a breakthrough within six hours. So I'm like, why the fuck does this guy run so much? Why does he like who, what, like if someone put a gun to my head and said, you need to run an ultra marathon or your entire family's gonna be murdered. I'd be like, just murder my family right now. Like that's, <laughs> that's the same equivalent yeah. of, I can't run a, a 5K. Like it's like my legs start hurting. I go, okay, I'm gonna stop cause this hurts. So the best, like you said, all the best runners are in recovery and they're covered in tattoos. It's like, what are you running away from? The mm-hmm. pain of something, the the the, the um, amazing ability to completely disassociate your mind from your body so that you can, I mean, like for me, when I see that, I go, that's definitely, you gotta be in shape and physical, but it's more mental than physical. I, it's I mental, but just to flip the lens on that, the other side of that coin is that when you put yourself in that position, of trying to do something really hard, you meet yourself in a very fundamental way. Like you can't run away from who you are mm. and your character gets revealed, your weaknesses, your proclivities, like all of the looping in your mind, like mm. be- you become very present with all of that. And mm. I think it creates a greater awareness of kind of what you're dealing with. So you mm. can deconstruct it and move forward. Like that's the positive aspect of that because I got into this at a very difficult time in my life where I was confused about who I was and what I wanted to be. I'd been sober. Mm. It's not like I went, I got sober and immediately jumped into Mm. this. Like I'd been sober for 10 years before I got into it, but I was reaching another like plateau or kind of inflection point Mm. in my growth. And what I found through the process of, of like really submersing myself in that subculture is I learned a lot about who I am and mm-hmm. I learned, you know, what I needed to look at, where I was still, like all of these blind spots that I've been hiding from suddenly like percolate up to the surface. So wow. those things that you're running away from like come up, right? It's so scary. But it's too. an opportunity. 
And I'm not saying I've overcome all of those mm. things, but I definitely have a greater awareness of them and I've been able to kind of overcome some of them. So, wow, it sounds scary. So it's like you telling me I need to take six months off is like me telling you, you need to train for a 50 mile run or something like that. 50 miles? What's yeah. a marathon, 26 26. Miles? Fuck, I've never, gotta, I've you, never you gotta, in my life even- two could. years to do it. So if I run a marathon in, and you give me a two year time limit in that time or after you will take six months off. And I'll off. take six months off. Ooh, that's a challenge. I can't even imagine, like when anyone explains me like what they need to do to do a marathon, it's that to me sounds like mental illness. I go, that doesn't sound healthy. Yeah, um, but that's you putting a cap on your own capabilities. Do you know how much your life will like expand by t- like, the thing is you think by taking a six month break, you'll lose stuff like, mm-hmm. oh, I'll lose sponsors. I'll lose my flow. I'll lose like whatever momentum I had, but it's just the way my life has grown from taking a year off is like insane. You know, like I have more opportunities, more, you know, because we live in a society where it's moving so quickly. You just kind of want to say yes to things and go, oh, okay, cool. Let's like, and then you get sort of, or at least I should use I statements. I get taken for a ride where I'm like, do it. Like right now, you know, where I'm gonna, I'm about to have a conversation about season two, and it's like, hmm. there's no part of my brain that's like, oh, of course they offer you season two. You just take it, you know, without even considering like, well, is that even something that you should do, you know? So, um. Yeah, I guess my feeling when you ask me how I'm feeling right now is I bring so much um, weight to every interview and podcast that I do that, um, you know, I, 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 was, I left very, um, and this is part of my growth, uh, disappointed in every single interview I did on my show. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, unless I had the level of breakthrough that I did <laughs> for right. years. I mean, you're creating uh, a ridiculous expectation for yeah. yourself. And also it's like, I, I, um, you know, I know Rain just did your show and he's Mm -hmm. been asking me to do his podcast and I'm in a men's group with Rain. I don't think he would mind. And so I, I, we have a shared vocabulary where we talk in shorthand, like I don't have to explain things. And I go, um, he's like, yeah, come on and talk about art. I'm like, so boring. Like, is that really what you want? He's like, yeah, where creativity comes from. I'm like, fuck that. Like, mm. I'm like, how about, you know, because I know his father passed away. I go, how about I play your dad? And because I know your, and he's like, nah, I don't know if I right. want to do that. You would have pulled a show show I, on I his wanna, podcast. I wanna, that's what I want to do everywhere I go. Yeah. And I have to have people constantly explain to me, like, that's really heavy. That's really deep. Like, I'm like, let's go there. Let's, I, I want to find, I want to find that with um, other people, but I, it's like the impatience of like, I want it now. It's like, well, why don't you, why don't you build up to that? You know? Um, so I guess it's uh, unrealistic expectations yeah. and then, and then uh, sadness and then shame and then Burger King and then right. shame with overeating, then driving home. And then, you know, I'm going to Google like what it takes to run a marathon <laughs> and be like that, I'm never going to, and then and I just sit there and I'm like, I'm a loser. <laughs> Like how, you know. We're gonna feed you a little bit. I'm gonna (laughs) escort you out of here. I'm gonna give you a training plan. Uh, I'm gonna figure out how I'm gonna take six months off. Mm -hmm. And in the interim, man, I'm gonna uh, send you a bunch of grace. Thank you, man. Yeah. 
Same to you, man. Appreciate you. I appreciate the uh, honesty today, man, and sharing space with me. Yeah, I really thank do. You, man. Thanks. All right, buddy. Peace. Peace. Lads. <laughs> <laughs>